Greetings, Dr. Beckett. Welcome to the Quantum Leap Podcast. Theorizing that one could time travel within his own lifetime, Dr. Sam Beckett stepped into the Quantum Leap Accelerator and vanished. He awoke to find himself trapped in the past, facing mirror images that were not his own and driven by an unknown force to change history for the better. His only guide on this journey is Al, an observer from his own time, who appears in the form of a hologram that only Sam can see and hear. And so Dr. Beckett finds himself leaping from life to life, striving to put right what once went wrong, and hoping each time that his next leap will be the leap home. You are listening to the Quantum Leap Podcast. This is episode 144, Independence. Welcome to the Quantum Leap Podcast, everyone. I'm Christopher DeFilippis. I'm Alison Pregler. And I'm Matt Dale. And we welcome you all back to the Quantum Leap Book Club. In today's meeting, we will discuss book 11 in the Quantum Leap novel series, Independence by John Peel. Allison has been waiting her whole life to do this on the Quantum Leap <laughs> This is like Thou Shalt Not. It's just, it's the legendary independence. <laughs> the Allison favorite independence, as opposed to fan favorite Thou Shalt Not. So, yeah. <laughs> I just think, uh, to paraphrase Scott Bakula, oh, we're going to have some fun on this podcast. We're going to have some fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, part of that fun also includes an encore presentation of our interview with author John Peel. I listened to this interview today as I was prepping for the show, and God damn it, John is delightful. So yeah, yeah the the interview is fun and funny, and John is just he talks about the book with such enthusiasm. He spoke to our co executive producer Hayden McQueenie about the genesis of the story. It's it's it has some yeah, you know, like kind of like me. He has a circuitous road to publication, so he talks about that, and it's it's just really engaging. Anyway, I think so. I love to hear authors talk about the process. So if you like that as well, or if you just like a good time on mic, then you're going to want to stay tuned for that interview, which is coming up after the break. So. I guess we should just start officially by reading the synopsis blurb for anybody who needs to be refreshed on the novel Independence and what it's about. I happen to have it here in my hand. Would you guys like me to do the honors? Go for it, man. All right. A Leap for Liberty? It is August 1776. The war for independence has begun, pitting neighbor against neighbor. Samuel Beckett must take his stand with one side or the other. But Samuel Beckett, the real Samuel Beckett, is now over 200 years in the future, and his several times great-grandson has taken his place. Is Samuel Beckett a patriot or a Tory? Or, as some suspect, a double agent? Ziggy doesn't know, and Sam's Swiss cheese brain can't remember the family history. So Sam is left on his own to discover the dangerous truth, Quantum Leap, independent, and all-new adventure, first time in print. Well, it's sort of new. 
if you haven't read it. So <laughs> if you haven't read it, boy, you're going to be in for a ride with this podcast. <laughs> you're not going to, but you're going to end this podcast thinking, nah, they, they just made that up. <laughs> that didn't, that wasn't a book. But they did. <laughs> that wasn't published. <laughs> it was so published, and we're still going to talk about it. <laughs> I mean, it, it could have been published as, like, steamy historical erotica. Uh, well, I mean, let's just, we, we, we have to talk about it, so there's no sense in delaying it at all. Allison, <laughs> tell me what you thought about uh, what I like to call incest grandma. <laughs> It says grandma. It's the new diaper monkey. It's in vogue. Uh, listen, I want to preface this. John Peel seems like a very lovely guy. Uh, he was generous enough to do an interview with us. Uh, I thank him for that because it's very interesting. He seems very cool. I want to separate my thoughts on this this book <laughs> from him as a person. <laughs> All right. I've already done a video on this book. Uh, if people uh, have seen it, they know my thoughts. Uh, I hate it. I hate this book. <laughs> I hate this book so much. I hate that it's just grandma incest. You called it the, the grandma incest book, and that's what it is. Like you'd think, oh, we're just exaggerating. That's not really what the book's <laughs> about. But that's what the book is about. It's just leap between the states, the creepier version, and that was already kind of creepy. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Sam leaps back. Back into another ancestor during the Revolutionary War, and about 90% of this book, it felt like, was him just going like, is it really incest if I got with my grandma? <laughs> and, and that's my thoughts. <laughs> One hell of an initial impression. I knew that we had to get that out of the way. So we'll talk about that a hell of a lot more. Um, Matt, what were your initial impressions of Independence? Yeah, at, at the risk of repeating, Alison, I also must say I've met John a couple of times and he's a lovely guy. I also grew up with uh, the novels he did based on Doctor Who and they are so well written. I know he's a good author. This is not a good book um, for, for all kinds of reasons, not just the grandma incest. There's, there's other issues that I have with it. But I mean, the grandma incest is the obvious thing. And like Alison says, yeah, there is so much of it. It's not just, ah, oh, it's nice and romantic. There is a lot of... Al and Sam both letching like mad. It's it's very <laughs> and graphical. Then they ask the question if it's incest too. It's not yeah, just yeah, a, yeah. like oh, it's kind of in the background. This is the debate yeah. of the book. <laughs> That's the line. They they weren't that close, really. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. I believe Al's defense was you're more related to Marilyn Monroe. No, but that but Sam also, Sam says the line. They weren't that close, really, as he's trying yeah. to justify it to himself. Yeah, he's like, oh, maybe, maybe, maybe I could pull my grandma. <laughs> <laughs> so, Sam wasn't absolutely sure that that was the correct term for what it would be. That's right, you you, you die on that hill, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> the whole the whole book is him in that Futurama episode where he becomes his own grandpa. <laughs> <laughs> Did you say something, dearie? I was thinking about that quite a bit this weekend as I was yeah. reading this book. So, uh, Chris, what were your initial thoughts on this? <laughs> I mean, was there a grandma in this? I was so occupied by all the Long Island stuff that I didn't really notice the characters. Um, yeah, I don't know how you missed it. <laughs> <laughs> to give this one a little bit of context, you might know because I don't know if I talk about it enough. 
I'm a Long Islander. <laughs> and this book <laughs> takes place on Long Island. And not only that, but uh, Sam's house in this book is in my hometown of Smithtown. So yeah. I grew up in Smithtown. And so it was neat to have all of these local connections. Mm. And I was pretty preoccupied with going through where Sam was, where he was going, the distances involved, all of sort of the just the logistics of getting around in a, in a pre-Long Island Expressway era on Colonial Long Island. And that really took up a lot of my mental energy. So yeah, this grandma stuff, I don't know. I, I, I kind of glanced over that stuff. But no, seriously. How, <laughs> How called, do you glance over it? It's a joke. It's a joke. It was a defense mechanism, Allison. I had to. I had to for my own sanity. <laughs> I only feel bad for you guys that there wasn't a Long Island connection that you could cling to for yeah. dear life. Like, like cling to it like grim death because otherwise, what else do you have to focus on? <laughs> I, I couldn't even cling to the, oh, hey, Wars of Independence. This is like my personal history. I mean, there's obviously an element of it, but this, this is very much American history. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I, I couldn't even get, get to that. I feel like this this was kind of a nice reverse of the usual British written by American, and you can totally tell, because this is American written by British, and man, you could totally tell. <laughs> <laughs> like when Elle is like, there's brambles all about, Sam! <laughs> That really bollocks things up. <laughs> like what? I think he also said Excuse bloody, me? bloody at one point. Right? Oh, my favorite was he said daren't at one point. You daren't send that message. I'm like, who? What century is anyone using the word daren't anymore? <laughs> that, see, you daren't, Sam. <laughs> that's really interesting. Some of that went straight over my head because it's perfectly normal for British people to use. So I just I glossed over. Did it. You say daren't? Do you mean as in? D-A-R-E-N apostrophe T. Yeah, like dare not. Yeah. Dare not, yeah. You say daren't? Is that is that still a common Britishism? Uh, it's quite formal, so I suppose it, not so much, but it also wouldn't jump out at me, especially with a slightly older guy from the 90s. Yeah, it wouldn't jump out at me. It obviously didn't jump out at me because I didn't notice it. There was so much of this. There's so much that doesn't sound like Scott Bakula and Dean Stockwell. So much that... Odd words didn't even didn't even cross. Yeah, no. it felt very British, but besides that, yeah, they didn't speak like they speak on the show. It was really weird. At one point, Al says uh, that she deserves a smack on the fanny, which <laughs> I still don't see Al saying fanny, but especially knowing a British guy wrote it made it very funny to me. <laughs> I know, that, it, that's, that sounds like a British guy trying to be like, right, I'm, I'm going to make sure I get this American word in because... Yeah, they I would know, say I know fanny differently. Yes, exactly. <laughs> oh, they would say fanny meaning the bum. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just sitting here giggling to myself, as was John at the time, I'm sure. I'm sure. Probably. I'm sure. So, yeah, I'm, I mean, some of that stuff did show through to me. It didn't distract me all that much because like you guys, or maybe not you, Allison, but like you, Matt, I've met John at least once, maybe a couple of times in passing, mainly at cons and stuff. Probably at one of the e-sleeps because my book is signed. Uh, it's not really inscribed in any way. It just says, best wishes, John Peel. So That's nice. So I met John at least once, and I know I've been on a panel with him at a con. He's got some awesome, like, sideburns. Oh, and yeah, he's got those mutton chops going, going. Yeah, I mean, he's epic. I appreciate the personal style. <laughs> yeah. And like like you've said, Matt, just a lovely, lovely guy. Yeah. Mm. 
I was so preoccupied with the Long Island stuff because John is also a Long Islander. That's how I've run into him a few times because, you know, these local cons are pretty small. So you, you do tend to see some of the same people over and over. So he did get a lot of it right. But I, I know that that's just me. And we are going to go go down that cul-de-sac. But let's talk about the bigger story here with the, the historical setting. How did you guys like this take on the genetic timeline leap and going back to the Revolutionary War? I mean, uh, you know, when we talked about Leap Between the States, I'm not really against the idea. I think it's really interesting, but I don't think that it was very interesting in this book because it felt like a rehash of Leap Between the States. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know they are different wars, but it seemed like a very similar story. And I don't think it was really capitalized on the fact that this was very far back for Sam. He seemed to immediately fall into place and not be that freaked out about the fact he was in the 1700s. Uh, there wasn't a lot of fish out of water stuff going on. You could have taken the name Sam out of there and this could have just been a historical fiction about some random ding dong during the, the <laughs> beginning of that war or whatever. I don't know. It just wasn't very interesting. And I could tell that he did a lot of research about historical mm. accuracy, which is really admirable, um, but it's written about very dryly. It's it's very stating and not a lot happening. It, it was kind of boring, to be honest. Hmm. Yeah, to the point of that that fish out of water element. I, I think Sam really he did fall into play so quickly because he suddenly had all these memories flooding back, which he doesn't usually. It's like, oh, I I remember that very specific battle and that very specific person, and he just yeah, it's all too quick. And speaking as a Brit, just yeah, looking in at this and leap between the states. Did anything happen in American history besides a bunch of civil wars? Surely there's other things yeah. that could have happened that would have been interesting to see. He could have gone to any of his ancestors to any point in time yes. that would have been interesting, but this is so similar. Yeah, it invites comparison. Unless you're convinced you're going to do it better, best not do it at all. So it was a shame. There was, there was elements of it I found interesting, um, and I certainly think I would have followed because it's yeah it is quite dry um and i i struggled to follow it in places as a result i think if this had been televised and i could visualize it a bit better that would have helped well, if it was televised you wouldn't be reading descriptions of you know how they sell corn in the marketplace and how these buildings are laid out yeah. you would just see it i feel like you would get more story than yeah. what happened here as a result of basically just describing the situation. Yeah, yeah you exactly. know, it never even occurred to me, but I found it all that stuff to be really interesting. But obviously, because I'm picturing all this stuff in my head as I know it now, juxtaposing it to what it would have been like then. And I mean, that's one of the benefits, I guess, of having a fellow Long Islander do the story and make that interesting. Because now that I think about it, and I hadn't right up until this second, had this been any other Civil War story set, not Civil War, Jesus, look at, I'm doing it too. Had this been any other Revolutionary War story set in any other place, I probably would not have been as interested in it. It's only because of the touchstones that I was able to picture. So I sort of get that, but I still think that there was some interesting stuff on that side of the story. I just wish that it had had gone someplace. So the the one thing that I did appreciate about this, and it's one page, I don't think it really saves the entire book, but um, the, the one thing that made me say, okay, I don't mind about the fact this is about another war. There's this gloriously brutal battlefield scene slash page. Right, when Al pops in to see it. Yes, and it's you've got this great Al stuff going on, like looking but not wanting to look and turning away, and it's, it's really well described, and it, it does show that kind of 
futility of war in a way that I don't think even Leap Between the States gets. Um, yeah. There's, there's elements of it in Vietnam, uh, in the Leap Home too. But it, it is such an on-point moment. I just wish the rest of the book could have been written to that quality. I wish the rest of the book had been about that kind of stuff. There's so much yes. debating what the leap is about mm. um, or or talking about things that are going to occur that you don't really get to see much of. That's all you see of the battle. Like Al goes, uh, pops in and, and sees this and he's checking on this guy in the leap that Sam's there to save uh, named Isaiah. Um, but throughout this battle that Sam has been worrying about this entire book. He's like, I don't know if I'm going to have to join in on this thing or if I'm going to send the secret message or what's going on and I could affect everything and blah de blah de blah. Uh, and then he's asleep through the whole thing. He's asleep yes. through this entire fight. Anytime that seems like it's going to be about something more, uh, it doesn't quite go there. Like um, Sam is part of this group, the Committee of Safety, which was a, a real thing. And uh, he's part of this group and they're going around beating people and shooing them out of town for being like British sympathizers. Sam is part of this group. And when Al shows up, instead of discussing the fact that Sam has disgustedly been part of this group that is beating people, attempting to murder them, they got a pause to talk about grandma sex yeah. for the hundredth time. <laughs> Do not get into that because they got to talk about how he's horny for grandma. So I'm like, can you be about something else? (laughs) (laughs) And it's a shame because that's another part of this book that I think it does almost get right. This gave me shades of episodes like Justice where Sam is sort of undercover having to do things that are a bit scummy uh, that he knows he doesn't agree with, but he also has to do it to keep his his persona. And it, it's it's really interesting to see that stuff, but then it all goes back to grandma incest. Yeah, and I mean, I, I want to talk more about the historical stuff and sort of the, the way the plot was all over the place and some of the failings and some of the, I think some of the successes um, as we, we've dabbled in here. But I really do want to talk about the Hannah storyline first, just so that we we don't have to keep referring back to it as something that interrupted the rest of the story. Because, I mean, Matt, I think you put it best on our our private chat that we do on Messenger before we do the shows, you said something like, I remembered the grandma incest as part of this book, but I didn't remember it being so pervasive throughout the entire book. Yes. Right? Yeah. And, and it made me laugh. And I said, was it really that bad? Oh, it really was that bad because every single yeah, scene between Sam and Hannah, it's always Sam, like, like not only – not. Okay, we got it. You, you've said it a few times, but every single scene is how mm-hmm. he is just so super horny and super aroused, but I can't do it, but I want to do it. I'm such a scumbag for wanting to do it, but she's so hot. <laughs> Look at her. And it's just like this This constitutes half the book. And after a while, you're just like, why are we rehashing this again? I understand you get this visceral reaction when you see her. That's great. That's fine. Uh, maybe that's normal to a degree. Considering that she, the twist, looks just like Donna, but I I think... (laughs) Oh, oh, no, hang hang on. Don't don't just don't just drop that in. Oh, I like won't. It's can't nothing. skim over I that. Won't, I won't. You can't. <laughs> I have so many questions. We have many questions. And John, well, before we go into this, and we will, and we're gonna rip it apart. Um, John actually leans into this heavily as like the first part of the interview. So you guys are really gonna want to listen to this because he's got oh, a man. whole thing going on, and he's yeah. all right. All right. So, but anyway, so yeah, I yeah. So the twist is that Hannah looks almost exactly like Donna. And then Sam's ancestor looks almost exactly like him, too. Yes. They both look exactly the same. 
That's not the twist as I saw it. Right? <laughs> <laughs> what, what was the twist well, as you saw well, it? Well, to me, it's a double twist. You, you've got, right, I, I, I pulled out two quotes here to demonstrate this. You've got Al saying, if this was 1995, maybe there'd be a problem. She'd be kind of thin and bony, but she's young and healthy. Boy, is she ever healthy. He sketched a pair of breasts in the air. Did you see the hooters on her? <laughs> 200 pages later, Al, isn't it ironic that both men married women who look almost identical? Al fancies Donna. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, she was massaging him in that one book. We know they got something going on on the side. <laughs> I mean, my goodness, could it be more blatant? Well, 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 they did try to explain that away at the end in the epilogue. Mm. Yeah, we know he's horny for Donna, though. Oh, we do. You know it. This was a good way for him to explain it away because we all know that Donna is the chronicler of the leaps. She writes them like the Canterbury Tales. <laughs> so in this one, Al was talking about my bits quite a bit. Oh, wait. So <laughs> it was okay because he was trying to keep Sam thinking with his dick so that he wouldn't remember that he's married to me. So that's the way they tried to explain it away at the end. (laughs) (laughs) Who cares? That wouldn't have changed anything. This is stupid. This is fanfic land. This is fanfic Mm -hmm. land that they it looks exactly like Donna. And like why though? I mean wouldn't that imply that that Donna and Sam are related in some way? Like that's just weird. Oh well yeah I mean that's that's Back to the Future 3 all over again with it, Leah Thompson being cast as uh, an ancestor of Marty and Michael J Fox it's like doesn't make sense like they keep seeking out identical looking women over the years except Jennifer and again John has John has a theory about this that he talks about in the interview so but at the same time to me it it just doesn't work top to bottom and it might have been funny as like a one off or an aside or something that that they Oh, isn't isn't that? Oh, I guess I I'm horny, but I can't be. And let's just move on with the actual story. But you soon come to realize this constitutes the actual story. And not only that, <laughs> not only is that somewhat unforgivable, but the dialogue between Hannah and Sam in this is just execrable. It it is just trite <laughs> garbage. Not every single interaction you have even with the woman you love, is some flirty, I love you, I'm going to bone you later, sort of innuendo, you know, Constantly. cute fest. And it's just like, mm-hmm. how about you just talked about, I had to slop the hogs and it really stunk. <laughs> I think um, my favorite bit of this is when she's, because uh, she's constantly wanting to get in bed with him and he doesn't want to. The grandma is super horny as well. <laughs> so she's trying to get with him and then he's got to go do the chores and then he's like, I got to go pick apples for the apple pie. <laughs> and so he's like angrily picking apples so he doesn't have to think about how sexy his grandma is. Like he's, <laughs> that's the, they even say like that's his distraction is picking apples. Yeah, because cold showers oh, aren't available yet. Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah. Like what? What is that about? <laughs> the, oh, the, and then like at, he walks in, and then she's bathing because it's bathing night, and then, <laughs> and then he has to bathe his grandma, and she wants to bathe him. Why? Why is this in this book? <laughs> Picking apples is the uh, colonial equivalent of thinking of baseball. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure baseball existed back then. <laughs> <laughs> but not as a metaphor. No. Oh, um, I did want to say, uh, okay, so a lot of this book is, <laughs> there's so much grandma incest, but I could kind of see how maybe what led to writing this and maybe it was like, oh, you know, because they look exactly alike, they're lovers through time or something. I don't know. You know, maybe they're always destined to kind of be, whatever. I don't like it, but maybe that's where it came from. I don't know how to justify Sam thinking 
maybe he leaped back to get his grandma pregnant. Yeah. This is a thought he has at one point. It's like, this is so fucked up. But even <laughs> if it wasn't his grandma, it would still be fucked up. Why would he think this? This is trilogy all over again. No, thank yeah. you. <laughs> I mean, there was precedence, right? It was bad on the show. It didn't need to be in book form. Precedence is no excuse, sir. That points to a problem with um, Sam's, not not Sam, Sam, but Samuel's original history, which they finally figure out because this book is just a mishmash of why am I here? What should I be doing? As you were mentioning, Allison, it's all over the place. Yeah, but, constant. But they finally deduce that Samuel, because when Sam leaps in, he's at knife point and they're saying, are you with us? Or are you against us? Basically, you're a Whig or you're a Tory. And he circumvents this dangerous situation, but he joins this committee of safety. And it turns out that the real Samuel would have been killed in that altercation because he never would have joined the committee. He would have flatly refused. The only reason he was there was to see what Isaiah was up to and to maybe back up and help Isaiah. But he says flat out in the future, no, I never would have joined them. And Al says, Ziggy says there's like a 98% chance that they would have slit his throat. So... You actually were here to save him. So that tells me that in the original history, he would have been dead and Daniel would have been the only heir, the only Beckett to move on. So for Sam to sit there and wonder, how is this going to affect my timeline? Apparently, the very second he thwarted that knife attack, he messed up his own timeline because he would have been out of it. Said the actual Mm -hmm. Samuel would have been dead. So that right there... Makes me say, well, wait a minute. So how is anything that he's doing keeping them safe? Because obviously the original Samuel died and Daniel made it on, right? Yeah, there was so much of this book. I was wondering what he was there for. It didn't seem like he was there for anything. And they kept throwing out different ideas. But it's like, okay, I guess he saved Samuel's life in the beginning. But I'm like, I don't know. They keep talking about how Hannah and the baby or whatever would die or something if Samuel did, if you joined this thing. It's like, well, he died already anyway. And Sam was still around. So that like his family line still went on. So I don't know why they don't think of that. And then they're like, I guess you're here to save Isaiah. But it's like, is that because he changed something because he saved Samuel? Is that... What was going on? It was just was it just to help him swim in the last five pages? Oh, like, I have what, many things to say about that. But what yeah, we'll was get to that. any of this? Like I, I had I struggled to figure out the purpose of this story. And it doesn't help that right at the very start of the book, John establishes something that just doesn't seem to make any sense with everything we've heard before, which is Sam thinks the past could be and had been changed a number of times. Mostly, it was up to Sam to change it back, but sometimes he'd altered it for the better. It's like that. That's in the saga self. Every yeah, that's exactly what he's there for. Yeah, <laughs> has he been watching the time tunnel? Yeah, <laughs> at, at one point, Al says it's not our job to change history, and it's like, excuse me, <laughs> what are you talking about? That goes hand in hand with that. It's like, what? Do you, what is the show about? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Twice they mention Jackie Kennedy as like this kind of exception or whatever. But I mean, in in the real world, as viewers looking in, yes, it's an exception. But it, that's no, that's exactly the same point. He's done something to change history for the better. Yeah. So mm, the yeah. fact that, that that John came in with the premise that history has changed and Sam needs to change it back, I'm like, well, that that's fundamentally wrong. 
Mm. (laughs) And it makes it even harder to understand everything else that happens because you've also got this voice in the back of your head thinking, all right, I'm trying to make sense of this, but is it worth me trying to make sense of it? Because whatever John's presenting doesn't make sense anyway. It's Yeah. Yeah. And I think that maybe speaks to why the book is just so full of what I call uh, the red herring problem. There are so many different things that Sam could be doing and we never settle on one of them. And this is actually kind of a shame because... A lot of these storylines, as they were being developed outside of Grandma Incest, I found to be the strengths of the book. It's when the book became interesting to me. There was one plot where Sam is somehow involved in the uh, – I guess it's the Washington spy ring. I'm not really sure. I didn't. I never saw this series turn, and that was a very popular thing about – five, six years ago about how spies were here on the island because it was heavily British. So there were double agents and they were helping the cause of the patriots and, and all that stuff. When they got into that and they started describing, you know, the people that Sam was meeting and, and going to these clandestine meetings and, and doing this stuff, it's like, oh, the story's finally kicking in. I'm actually getting really mm-hmm. interested. Yeah. And I thought that was, you know, fairly good stuff. It was stuff I could finally sink my teeth into. But then nothing happens with it because as Allison said, and I wrote it cheekily on our uh, on our rundown that Sam slept through the Battle of the Five Armies. He's he's essentially yeah. Bilbo Baggins. I mean, it, it gets to the point <laughs> in the book. In the book, he has this meeting out east with this British double agent, and it's his job to tell the generals on the front line at the Battle of New York, which takes place in Brooklyn, that the British are also going to be flanking them from the east. So. They need to, when they fight the war there, be prepared to turn around and fight another war. And it's it's imperative for their success that Sam deliver this message. Well, Sam is on his way to do so, and then he gets waylaid by the Committee of Safety, and they knock him out cold, and he basically sleeps through the entire Battle of New York. And it's just like, so <laughs> yeah. then, why, then why did we spend time doing this? Like, it was so interesting. How is this going to culminate into something that changes history or, or that, that gets Sam to leap? And no, it was just, it was just an aside because I guess John thought it was interesting and he did some research about it. And it, it did make for some meaty story turns, but at the end of the day, it meant nothing. There was also another great scene where Sam, after he gets, you know, beat up and knocked out, he wakes up and his brain is scrambled and he is confusing himself with Samuel of that time. So he thinks that he is Samuel. He can't see Al. Al is trying to get to him. And I'm thinking, okay, so this is great. Now he's going to proceed as if he's Samuel. Where is this going to go? In the next scene, he wakes up and he's just himself again. Yeah, it was like one page. <laughs> Sam thinks that, and then he's back to normal after. And it's like, that didn't go anywhere either. And you guys have already pointed out the logical fallacy of if Samuel was killed anyway, seconds after Sam leapt in, then why would Sam be there to save Isaiah? It, it yeah. makes no sense. Yeah. Isaiah would have either died in the Battle of New York because it was Sam who rescued him from the front lines and got him back to his wife and family. He never would have even been in a position to drown. So why is Sam there to save him? Yeah, he was like, oh, well, then Samuel couldn't swim and that's why I'm here. And it's like, well, if that was the case, if Samuel didn't die originally and he was there, but he just couldn't swim then the whole book basically was unnecessary. Sam could have just leapt in while they were on the boat. (laughs) I have so many things to say about that scene. But then we would have missed grandma incest. (laughs) But I I have to say, there was, despite all that, I think some interesting things here. Um, 
especially when it came to the Battle of New York, they were discussing what is the scope of Sam's leaping and what are his responsibilities? You know, mm. Al has always, especially in the first couple of seasons that we're watching, saying, well, maybe if we can affect like bigger history, we can prove that you're back here and we can get the funding that we need. And you have to do, you know, like the U2, right? Like we saw in Honeymoon Express. And in this one, he's kind of saying the same thing. Well, you can change the, the course of the Revolutionary War for the better or something like that. And Sam's like, well, but is that what I'm here to do? Everything always pointed to me just helping individuals like Isaiah. So who's to say that I'm not here? And then they pointed out the Kennedy thing and the Jackie thing. So, I mean, that's where the book, it, it, it sort of got interesting to me, some more philosophical questions about why do you leap and really what is the purpose of leaping? I think we kind of know that from the show now because the bartender says, you know, those lives touched others and still others. So it is just the cascading effect of small kindnesses which I like, but why can't it be bigger things to make history better for everybody as well? Because, I don't know, I guess that was what was interesting about Quantum Leap as a time travel story, is that the focus was so often on smaller things. You know, they said it in Honeymoon Express, They were it was important, it was big to the people that it happened to, you know, not just about changing big things in history. And, and that's what made it so relatable, too. Like, you were just hearing stories about people that could have been just like you, you know? Mm. Um, I don't know. I don't know where the timeline of this story also takes place because Leap Between the States was the third to last episode. After that, it was Elvis and then it was the series finale. And it's possible other leaps could have happened between then. But the way that they're referring to it, they're like, oh, yeah, didn't Sam leap into his ancestor one time? Yeah, it's like that. It, they're referring to it as if it, it happened a while ago. So either a lot of things happened between that and Elvis and the finale or something doesn't add up here. Yeah. The other thing that this book does, it implies pretty directly that they're in the 21st century. I think that Al says something to the effect of Donna being a 21st century woman and Samuel wouldn't be able to take her sensibilities or something like that. So they're implying that this is post the year 2000 anyway, whereas in, in the series, did we ever get any kind of definitive proof that they had gone beyond 1999? I know that doesn't line up for a lot of stuff, but it was always 1999 back at the project. No matter when, it was always 1999. <laughs> <laughs> the, the captions at the end of Mirror Image, uh, although they don't state the year, they would have to be in the year 2000 based on, uh, I can't remember the exact wording, but uh, she, she and Al celebrate their 34th wedding anniversary this year. And that means that final caption has to be in the year 2000. But yeah, only only just. All right. All right. So that's the first time I've ever heard that. So thank you for schooling me on that. It never even occurred to me that you could use that to backdate. You're you're a genius. You're a British genius. But, but that's <laughs> that's a caption. There's nothing there's nothing within the episodes that says anything other than 1999 after Lee Harvey Oswald. Yeah, Lee Harvey Oswald was the premiere of season five, so they could have feasibly gone into 2000 during that time, but I don't know exactly how far into it they went. But it just doesn't, it, it would have to take place sometime after Leap Between the States, so I mean, it, you got to squeeze it in there somewhere. It just feels a little, a little bit of a stretch to me. Uh, I, I kind of assume all the novels take place between, uh, or with a couple of exceptions, um, Chris is included, I think. Uh, almost all of them take place between Memphis Melody and Mirror Image. There's just a chunk of spin-off fiction in there. And that, that's my head canon. Well, I think in uh, 
what was the final mirror's edge and mirror's i think edge mirror, definitely. Mirror, yeah, yeah mirror's edge i think directly goes to mirror image mirror's edge refers to uh, memphis melody and then that story mirror's edge happens and then it ha- the finale happens i think it's it's squeezed between the two so if you if you take the books as all being canon with each other then it couldn't have happened after memphis melody yeah, fair, fair point. So, Matt, refresh my memory. Did you say that mine has to be squeezed between Memphis Melody and Mirror Image? Because I just remember saying in my my own preface, uh, like the author's note, that it took place sometime after Trilogy. But I don't recall referencing the Elvis episode in story. I might have. It's been a long time. No, ignore my point. So, no, um, I, I just, I personally choose to place all the novels right at the tail end, except for a couple that, like, there's... Knights of the Morning Star can't take place at the tail end because it's obviously before Return of the Evil Leaper. There's a couple like that that must take place earlier. But unless stated otherwise, I tend to just shove them all at the end. And that does include yours. You're right. The, the only reference to a, a time is uh, Trilogy Part 3. Yeah. That, it, that it's after that. But who knows if I did reference Memphis Melody in some point in the story. And I'm not saying I did because I honestly don't remember. Yeah. You don't reference, I'm just looking through my notes from your book, and I don't think you reference any uh, novels. You reference a bunch of episodes, uh, the latest of which is, uh, yeah, the, the trilogy. <laughs> this trilogy. is fascinating. This is absolutely fascinating. Anyway, it's fascinating to me. I love that he knows more about your book than you do at this point. <laughs> I love it's it so too. funny. And Foreknowledge for is uh, set in 1999. He's got it. Like I said, because back at the project, it's always 1999. It was always 1999. That is a hard and fast rule. (laughs) I have no issue with kind of 1999 to 2000. Yeah, there's there's a couple of novels that suggest it might be 2000 as well. So this wouldn't be the only one that does that. Well, it's fun to try to place these in. For me, it's all independent adventures that take place in the Quantum Leap universe at whatever time you want that makes sense for you Yes. after whatever episode they reference. Yeah. If this was a book I liked, I wouldn't really care if the timeline didn't make sense because the show's timeline doesn't make sense. So Yeah. I have a note that I took in 2016. This is not a note from this time around saying, Tina's thoughts tell us that the framing events of this novel take place in the 21st century. That will then be contradicted by Mirror's Edge, because Mirror's Edge is New Year's Eve 1999 into 2000. Hmm. Okay. And that's the scene I was thinking about, because when Samuel escapes from the waiting room and looks at her tent. Yes. Let's talk about that scene. (laughs) I would like to talk about Tina in this book. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) All right. I want to talk about Tina. All right. Tina is not very prominent in this book until... (laughs) Near the end, Sam's ancestor, Samuel, who has been uh, informed of what's going on, but he thinks it's some sort of British plot or something. He manages to escape. Like he, uh, I think he just shoves Al and leaves. And Al's like, he punches uh, Al in the he jaw. He punches him, right. Yeah. He punches Al in the jaw. And then Al's like, give me a medic. And then he doesn't <laughs> want to do anything. <laughs> He's like, oh no, you go get him. And so like, he runs out and they're like, we gotta, we gotta leak in the timeline. We gotta get him. <laughs> so he's running around and, uh, uh, Tina's like, oh, I'm going to take him out. <laughs> I've got this. <laughs> so she runs out there and uh, there's <laughs> she's got one of her slinky outfits on and um, there's a guard who has a gun <laughs> and uh, so he's uh, about ready to shoot him and she's like, hey, maybe don't shoot 
<laughs> Dr. Beckett's ancestor, please. So she gets the gun and she's like pretending like she's like, well, if we were British. And by the way, this whole time, uh, I think because Samuel was distracted looking at her boobs. That's how she's able to do this. This whole time um, he's doing that. And she like uh, gets the gun and she's like, if we were really the British, why would we need information from you? Because this gun's so much more sophisticated than anything you've seen. And he's like, oh, yeah, prove that's a gun. And she's like, OK. And I guess in this version of the project, they're just paintings yeah. hung about. <laughs> What's that all she about? Sees, she sees a painting that I guess like Al put up and she thought was ugly. So she's like, check this out. <laughs> Shoots it. <laughs> and, and then Shoots after the she's <laughs> after creating a hole in the painting, she sits down on one of the sofas that they've just got lying around, put some throw pillows around. You know? <laughs> I'm going to shoot the painting for you. <laughs> Check that out. And yeah, and that's why he believes her. And that's her biggest contribution to this book. <laughs> but, but what a scene it was. Well, she did subdue him at first because apparently she's got Kirk Fu. Oh, yeah, yeah. She she chops him, karate chops him in the gut. <laughs> she karate chops him, like, in the neck. <laughs> and it, like, brings him to his knees. <laughs> that was an amazing scene. I actually loved that. It was very good. <laughs> but that begs a question to me. Okay, so we know Leon Stiles got out, right? And the ensign that uh, he took the gun from obviously got in the room and Stiles knocked the ensign out and took the ensign's pistol. After that, why isn't there a policy? at Project Quantum Leap that you are only allowed to carry either non-lethal forms of subduing somebody, like, say, a billy club or something like that, or a tranquilizer gun. They did have trank guns because Al shot him with one. But why would you have live rounds? Why would you be carrying around live rounds if your worst case scenario is that the leapy escapes from the waiting room and you have to subdue the visitor? Well, if you got bullets... You're going to kill the leapy, and by extension, yeah. you're going to mm-hmm. either strand or kill Sam. Nobody really knows. So, <laughs> like, so why would you be walking around with loaded guns? <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. This is stupid. I don't know. Is it some sort of policy because this is top secret government work? Is that what it is? It just feels really dumb. You're right. Like, they should have just had trank guns for this. But why is that guard immediately going to do it? Does no one have any training like, <laughs> to not shoot the leapies, please? <laughs> well, another goof in this book, uh, based on something that Donna said, because Al says it, well, this leapy looks so much like Sam. Uh, but you can tell that Al can see past the auras. Like, that's one of his prerogatives right. as an observer. They even go through in What Price Gloria that, that they fix that for him. In this, Donna obviously saw Samuel as Samuel, not as Sam. So this yeah. guard, is is he seeing Dr. Beckett or is he seeing someone that looks an awful lot like Dr. Beckett, but, hey, you know, screw it. I got to shoot this guy. <laughs> I got to shoot this guy. Yeah, because we know Gushy saw him as Dr. Beckett from Killing Time. Yeah, when Leon escaped. Yeah. Well, you look like him. Yeah. So I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> All we know is that Tina used uh, her karate and uh, and her breasts and her yeah. uh, aim to s- diffuse the situation while while Al was being a big baby. And he's like, eh, give me a minute. <laughs> <laughs> they even say, like, I think uh, Ziggy says that he's, I forget the wording she uses, but something about, like, him basically whining and <laughs> playing it up. A big crybaby. Yeah. <laughs> So I'm going to fix that in some headcanon. So I, I, I've I, long had this headcanon, and this is another reason I put as many of the novels as possible at the end of the series, that in the revised timeline created by Trilogy 3, Sammy Joe is at the project and has some ideas to try and get Sam back. 
which we know that happens on screen. The ideas that she has, uh, she tries them out and somehow this swaps uh, Sam from doing body leaps to doing mind leaps. And thus all the novels or many of the novels have mind leaps and almost all the inconsistency in the novels you can just write off with that potentially including this. The last half dozen episodes of the show don't really clarify too much whether it's a mind leap or a body leap, except for the fact that that's what we've had for the last 80-odd episodes. But potentially, you could say, post-trilogy three, all the rules we know go out the window. So as long as you put the novels in there, yes, there we go. There's another rule that's out the window. If if it's a mind leap, why does he have to be genetically related to someone to break his oh, the timeline? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I, I guess it doesn't make sense either way, but it makes less sense to me that way. Maybe maybe Sammy Joe's doing a bunch of different experimenting to bring him back. <laughs> My question to you, Matt, is how come I know you literally wrote the book, but how come your fanfic headcanon supersedes my fanfic headcanon? How dare you, sir? What's, <laughs> hang on, what's, what's your fanfic headcanon for this? It just, oh, it, I don't have any. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, it just doesn't make sense to you. This is, I figured out a way of kind of writing off any issues in the novels. I can't remember. Did you, did you have any mind leap crap in your novel? <laughs> yes, I did. I did. I had I had Al debating with himself whether or not it was body or mind and that he had seen evidence to support both. I don't know if he was doing it internally or, he, ironically, if he was doing it with Sammy Joe. <laughs> I feel like if they were at the Sammy Joe point, surely they could have established by then, like, they could have experimented and figured out what it was at the project. I'm just saying. <laughs> if that was actually a conscious decision, Yes. We all know this is just weird McConnell-verse stuff that's just gone on and on and on through the novels, and that's my way of retconning it. But of course it's bollocks. <laughs> but it's my bollocks. <laughs> it's my bollocks. I love it. I mean, speaking of bollocks, there are some other pretty substantial, I don't know if they're goofs in this one or just like, you know, typos, but they have one scene where John says the leapy leaped into the imaging chamber instead of the accelerator or the waiting room. Mm. Yeah, that's weird. He referred to the waiting room as the visitor's room at one point. That's obviously got to be like a, a like a typo. I don't know. Maybe he just thought, you know, like just rewording it, you know, like they're their visitor. I don't yeah, know. It could be. I don't remember that specific line, but. Oh, I, 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 yeah, I, I kind of look for that stuff. But a couple of things that intrigued me a little bit, and this will help like segue into some of the stuff I want to talk about, uh, about Al. There are two things in the imaging chamber that we see that gave me pause. One is Al sitting in midair, apparently. Mm. Uh, from Sam's point of view, just but sitting there yeah. floating like a swami, you know, but. No chair is visible, so... Yeah, it should have been visible if he touched it. Right? And then there's another thing where he says, Al dropped his cigar, and it fell and then disappeared once it got out of the imaging area. So apparently, the way John sees it, Al is in some sort of imaging field that doesn't just extend to what he touches, but then surrounds him. So if anything comes within that field or out of that field... Then it's so potentially Al could, you know, stick his arm out of the field. And from Sam's point of view, it would just be cut in half or something like that. So it was just a weird choice to me. I, I, it's like, do you, do you get, have you seen the show? I mean, clearly from his interview, he loves the show. He adores the show. So he's seen the show. But again, just these little things that kind of took me out of it. Like I thought it was established that if Al was holding on to it, you could see it. Hence Verbena. So 
if he's sitting on a chair, you should be able to see the chair. We even made that that joke <laughs> with your favorite commercial, Allison, with Al with the groceries. Yeah. <laughs> with the groceries, <laughs> and then he sits in the chair. Um, maybe he was thinking of that scene in Unchained where um, Al is sitting cross-legged uh, above the pit when Sam's in it. He's kind of floating. I mean, like, he's clearly on the floor, and you would, you don't see the floor of the imaging chamber if he's on it. They've shown him floating before, but maybe that was the thought. Yeah, I, I was uh, remembering that, too, like, while I was uh reading that scene i'm like that's not how it normally would <laughs> would look it didn't really bother me that but yeah it was a little off it would make sense if he was sitting on the floor and then he can project his image in you know any plane that he wanted to so that would have solved the problem but he's sitting down and sam remarks oh well he obviously brought a chair in yeah he's yeah he's definitely supposed to be sitting in a chair at that point like mm. Doesn't make sense. There there also was something, I don't know if it was a goof, I kind of noted it. It could be kind of interesting if it was purposeful, but um, uh, they're talking about uh, when all of the like families, they're like evacuating them, trying to get out of Dodge. Sam is thinking about, uh, he says if his father had lost his farm, it would have devastated him. But we know from the show's canon, his dad did lose his mm-hmm. farm. <laughs> uh, so I don't know if that's like Sam Swiss cheesing. It's kind of like, oh, he doesn't remember or yeah. if that was just a goof. I think it was just in the moment. And maybe, yeah, he was thinking maybe also when he was a kid or I don't know. I, I hadn't even considered it up until this point. But you're right. His dad did lose the farm. Although, did he change that in Promised Land? Did John still lose the farm after they busted those guys that were ripping everybody off? Yeah. yeah, I don't know if those guys specifically were the ones that, that ripped off his debt. Yeah. yeah, you could interpret it that way. I'm grasping, I know, I'm grasping. But I think one, one thing, I mean, I, I know we're talking about the, uh, if we can stick with the hologram stuff for a second. Some of the imaging chamber stuff didn't make sense, but I loved the way John used Al in this book. I loved the fact that he was a hologram through and through, and he was able to use the hologram as a tool to help Sam out more times than I think we've seen in the show. And in ways that I've yelled at the new quantum leap that they should be doing. I was just going to say, I'm like, is this too mean for me to mention the new Quantum Leap doesn't use the hologram in any way that a hologram should be No, no, because there's one scene in this specifically where um, they're trying to figure out how to get out of the Battle of New York in the aftermath where the British have routed the the colonists, right? And they're trying to get away. So Al actually lifts himself up to get a bird's eye view. To see where the troops are moving and what is a clear way for them to get out. And I'm saying, that's brilliant. Why didn't they use – and it reminded me of in um, Stand By Ben when they're trying to find this stupid cabin. And I'm like, well, (laughs) absence of freaking hologram. Why doesn't she just levitate up and say, oh, the cabin's right over there at 40 feet? Uh, It's just – it's too fun is the thing. (laughs) I don't think that we saw them do anything like aerial reconnaissance in the original series either. So I thought that that was really neat. No, he did. I think he like sunk into the ground when he was looking for that kid at the Bigfoot episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. And he was floating around when uh, Sam was in the plane. But I mean, yeah, I don't think they really had like him just like float into the air to kind of look down at things. They could have done it. That would have been kind of hard for them to do back then. Uh, I think it's more doable now, but they could have done that kind of thing in the show. So I really liked that part of this book, and I loved the part where they have to get through the fields at night, and you can't see a damn thing because, you know, it's colonial time, so there's no artificial light, there's no moon in the sky, and they don't know where they're going. So Al 
I think he he refracts or he adjusts the refraction level of the hologram for him so that it appears to him like daylight and then he can see clearly. And from Sam's point of view, Al becomes like this giant glowing beacon. Yeah, I think he asks like uh, Gushy or Ziggy or whoever to like increase the resolution for him. Yes. I'm like what? You like zoom in and enhance. <laughs> <laughs> but again, I mean, why not? Right? If if you can if I you guess. can center yourself on anything, why can't you do it that way? And why can't you manipulate what is basically just a, a computer generated image, so that you can exist in that image better? It's all holograms to Al. Right. So why not tweak the hologram? Why not? Why not adjust the adjust the hue? You know, it, I thought that that was just like I'd never seen that before. I thought that was great. Yeah, I mean, I guess like if you if you think too closely about it, it doesn't really make any sort of sense. But it's like, what are they getting the hologram of, of the stuff <laughs> around Sam from? It's from his brainwaves, right? Like, you know, they're connected to his brainwaves. So whatever Sam is seeing, Al can see from that time period. Or is it just like Ziggy peering through time because Ziggy can is outside of time or whatever? I don't know. Like, how do they see the stuff around Sam and not just Sam? This is interesting headcanon. Uh, Matt, what do you think about that? Well, it's it's never really that consistent at any point in the show and never explained on screen. But there is uh, a line in the draft script for Trilogy Part 2 where they establish that if Sam has been in a place for a couple of hours, then Al can visit that place, even if Sam's not there anymore. Yeah, but how does that... That doesn't explain anything. (laughs) I know, but it it makes an attempt, and that's probably why it got cut, because it it sort of tries to. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess I'm just trying to see, like, you know, if, if you could increase the resolution of it, like, where are they getting the hologram from? If it's just from... What Sam is seeing, surely the highest resolution you could have is what is the information Sam has, which is the resolution of the world. But it's it's not what Sam is seeing. Because how many times is Al not in the same place as Sam? He's so often in a completely different place. I guess so. Maybe what Al is seeing is like the 720p version of of whatever is around Sam, you know, like to save money with the holograms and he can increase the resolution, (laughs) even though to Sam it's, you know, what you would see in normal life. So maybe Al is seeing worse than him. (laughs) (laughs) I never would have thought of it that way. I don't know. (laughs) You're a weirdo. I don't know. It's it's one of those things that cannot be picked apart. (laughs) What, you think he ever gets lag and shit? Yeah, Sam, there's a bunch of lags in the frame. It's getting choppy. <laughs> Someone else is running the internet at the same time. We're getting the spinning wheel of death, Sam. Hold that thought. <laughs> Mom, hang up. That, hang up, Oh, my Mom. God. That was, that was something that was in um, uh, Leap to Die For. They had, like, Al get, like, the yes. blue screen or something. That was bung, so funny. Bung, 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 bung. Hilarious. <laughs> if they could play with that now, that would be good in the new show. But that would require them to have fun. <laughs> well, maybe they you know, be able to do like a soft reboot for season two. There's always a chance for fun, is what I'm saying. Now that yes. the mystery box is apparently <laughs> apparently gone, let's hope. Anyway, my headcanon says, much like you um, indicated earlier, Allison, that once Sam is there, Ziggy is somehow outside of time and can actually see into that era, maybe within a certain radius of Sam's existence. 
I mean, if Ziggy did that tornado looking through time to, like, try mm-hmm. and center Al, maybe Ziggy can just sort of... Right. But, I mean, if Ziggy could pop into any time, I mean, you could... You wouldn't even need to travel in time, right? right? Yeah. Exactly. Peer in on anything? Mm, nothing makes sense. And if Ziggy can scan all of Sam's birthdays to the end of the 21st century, then obviously she can see stuff independent of Sam. Yeah, and then why does she even need to look through records or anything? She could just look through the time and be like, here's what you need to change. Yeah. Yeah. That's something, huh? <laughs> but that would also explain why she knows certain things. It's like, why would you know why when that kid's not a virgin anymore? I don't know. Maybe she, she peered around and saw it. Siggy <laughs> <laughs> is a bigger pervert than Al. Bigger pervert than Sam with incest grandma. Hey, we were reading Independence. <laughs> okay, yeah, I got some more stuff about people at the project. I got stuff about people at the project, too. Okay, well, uh, there's a quick little bit, but I I bet I know what you're going to talk about. But before (laughs) that, um, (laughs) so about Donna, there's this weird kind of WTF bit from her at the beginning. She's like, oh, Sam's ancestors at the project? That's great. We could study them and then record it and we could do all this stuff. And I'm like, you dummy. Like, what is going on here? Like, she's like, I'm just going to study Sam's ancestor (laughs) for historical purposes. They're just weird. Well, I think what she's saying is that we have access to a time frame that we never thought that we would that is poorly documented. Yeah, she's she's excited about the history part, but she wants to record this and all this. It's like, when do you do that? It just seemed weird. And also she seemed so she was so uninvolved with the story until the twist at the end. It made it even more pointless. Well, there's there's a reason for that, too. John goes into it in the interview. Stay tuned for that after the break. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, I, this also reminds me, I was looking up reviews for this book online, and there's not a lot of them. It's kind of hard to find reviews for Quantum Leap novels, but I did find some that were funny to me, and one of them <laughs> was like, you know, I thought this book was pretty good. Uh, as someone who didn't watch the show, the twist at the end about his wife meant nothing to me. <laughs> <laughs> And it was so funny because I'm like, imagine you've never seen Quantum Leap and your introduction is reading <laughs> the novel Independence. <laughs> it's it's weird to me, too, to read a book based on a TV series you've never seen, but I don't know. I guess some people just like reading. <laughs> Maybe they're fans of John Peel. Maybe they're fans of the Revolutionary yeah, War. That's true. You know? So it, it, He's pretty uh, well known in the, the Doctor Who and Star Trek yeah, novel community, exactly. yeah. right? He's a yeah. prolific guy. So maybe, hey, I'm, I'm a John Peel completist. I need to read Independence. Quantum what now? <laughs> <laughs> I, that's got to be confusing. But uh, yeah, Matt, I think I know what you want to talk about. You want to get into it? Yeah. Should we talk about Beaks? <laughs> Yeah. That damn oh, Beaks. Yeah. I hate Beaks. I hate her. There's two, there's two <laughs> elements to this. So let's start with how much of a robot she appears to be. Like, oh, my God. Uh, it, right, one of her lines, <laughs> I, had to, I had to write this out verbatim. He meant no insult. And when I replied that I was not a servant, he apologized and suggested that I'd earned or bought my freedom. Further questioning elicited the response that he was Samuel Beckett of Smithtown, Nassau Island, and believed that today's date is sometime in 1776. Thank you, Brent Spiner. <laughs> Yuck. Oh, my God. What's going on with Verbena in this book? She's just so wooden. Maybe that's why Al hates her in this book. Why does he hate her so much? <laughs> Can I give you a spoiler from the interview? This is the one spoiler yeah. I'm going to give. Um, John uh, gave Ginger the, I don't know if it was the outline or the first draft, and Ginger said, there's no Verbena in this. And John said, who's Verbena? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> well, that explains a lot, actually. So I'm like, what is what is Verbena's job in this book? And then he oh. elaborates. <laughs> he elaborates more in the interview, but that is, I thought I was cracking up. I thought that was that, that makes and so I said, much oh sense. Oh my god, that explains the entire second chapter. <laughs> oh my god. I mean, it it kind of makes sense, but there's no excuse for writing a character so badly. Like, even if you don't know what she's there, the, her lines are just so wooden. Yeah, well, I think when you're writing, like, a psychiatrist character and one that had no lines on the show, it's really difficult to not go into robot mode. I mean, it was clunky, but I think a lot of the dialogue was clunky. I just didn't know what was going on. Like, okay, Al hated her, and it never seemed like in any other piece of (laughs) Quantum Leap media that he hates her. I get why he wouldn't like psychiatrists. That seems like something that he he would be like, I don't like shrinks, you know. But, um, yeah, she's like... uh, when they first go to the project uh, in this book, everyone is repeating the show's premise so clunkily. I thought it was the the pilot for Quantum Leap 2022. Yes. They were just like, well. as you know, this, do 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 do, and then this works like this. And I'm like, well, we're 11 books in. And surely people know the premise by this point. And then Verbena is leading this meeting like she's the boss of everyone and she's like super concerned with like contaminating the timeline or whatever and I'm like why is she in charge of this what is going on she's the time police yeah <laughs> she's time cop <laughs> it was so confusing meet my assistant Van Dam. but uh if you notice in the entire second chapter Al does nothing but growl and snap mm-hmm. yeah he's so he's such a little bitch in this <laughs> And I was thinking, oh, shit, John, not only does he not know Verbena, but he doesn't know Al because Al just clearly hates her. And it's just like, well, yeah, where, where is this coming from? He calls from? her like a devil, basically, at yeah. one point. Yeah. I think two points actually calls her a devil. He seems to see me now as a black-skinned angel. Boy, has he got the wrong woman for that role. <laughs> yeah, what? <And> cutting. <laughs> Why is he so like this is this is mean to Verbena. <laughs> so this is a character that he had to write in probably last minute in some way. So uh, this is where the seams are showing on that. Okay. okay. It it makes sense knowing yeah. that yeah. actually. <laughs> I don't know if it makes it for- forgivable, but it puts it in some kind of context, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, uh with, with Grumpy Owl, he is kind of callous in this book sometimes to comedic effects like the show like i think when he just shows up like in pajamas like hey, what's going on like, I feel like that was kind of that felt like an owl thing but um but yeah there's there's uh, there's parts in this book where sam has to kill people multiple times and i feel like this is not treated with the the gravitas perhaps warranted for sam murdering people he does feel bad about it a little but he is murdering people pretty frequently in this. And uh, at one point, he's really, he's mad about this. And then Al calls him a grouch. Yeah, yeah. But he just killed someone. He just killed someone. He's like, hey, what a grouch. And like, you... <laughs> Al's like kicking his foot through the corpses. Like, hey, get ridden. So he's like, what? <laughs> Why? Read the room, Al. Read the room. <laughs> Read the room. Yeah, I don't know about this. Read the hologram, Al. Read the hologram. <laughs> Yeah, um, that that was some of the parts that I don't know that it took me out of the story, but um, maybe a little bit because Al, especially as a veteran, yeah, you know, I, I can understand where he wants Sam to kick some ass. And hey, listen, we're talking like Honeymoon Express. Al is advocating for Sam to blow somebody away in the middle of a crowded train car. So maybe it's not right. that old friend. <laughs> 
I don't know. I just feel like there should be a little more reverence for life. Um, it, Briefly, when he's on the battlefield, he does remember some stuff about being in Vietnam and stuff like that, which I thought was a good touch to it. But he was, seemed kind of oddly cold at some parts. I also don't know. I think this was the most out of character. He hates babies. Yeah. He's like calling this baby a brat and he's like, I hate crying kids. And I'm like, I'm sorry. This seems out of character. Al loves babies. Anytime a baby showed up, he's like, ooh, babies. <laughs> Look at maybe baby. Yeah. Uh, out of character. Not canon. Something happened to the weasel. <laughs> yeah, we can afford puppets and stuff. <laughs> yeah. Just seemed like, why is he so down on this kid? I don't know. Take that, Daniel. You'd think he would say like, oh, well, I better take care of this kid because without him, I don't meet Sam. Yeah, I thought he would have had like, you know, like he was trying to calm the kid down or something, but he's like, oh, the kid's crying. I better leave. And then he died. You know what? Because he got burned once. He got too attached to Teresa Bruckner and he swore never again. <laughs> So it's all defense mechanism. <laughs> oh, foreshadowing. <laughs> I don't know. This kid. See- oh, yeah. That would lead into the next one, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> oh, right. I was just going to say this kid is super chill with everything. Like, this is the most chill six-month-old baby that ever lived. Like, the mom is shot and drive or, like riding on horseback with this kid. And apparently she had to point him out to Sam because this kid was quietly just sitting there. I'm like, I don't know. I don't see this happening. During the middle of the epic storm at the end of the book, the kid is is wailing quietly. I don't know how you do that, but he was wailing <laughs> quietly. So, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Like, in especially if she's riding horseback with one good arm, and this kid slung over her shoulder, like you can't. There's no way you can secure that kid's head. There's no. You can't travel like this. I'm sorry. So I have. I have. Okay, I have a theory about this. So, I think that Sam leapt back into Daniel as a six month old for a what? couple of reasons because number one they wanted the baby leap and they never got it number two Mm -hmm. you notice that the only time daniel cries is to distract hannah from sexy times so that's (gasps) him saying hey i need to you know i need a boner killer here let's leap into the baby number three she's she's got a bleeding wound on her shoulder she's gonna throw this kid on the back of a horse i better leap into this kid because his head is gonna flop around i can hold my head up and it won't i won't break my neck (laughs) and then uh, and then i'm gonna be on the deck of a freaking boat during a hurricane apparently (laughs) i'm sorry this is the wildest headcanon that's ever been thrown out on this show that sam leaped in to be his own cock blocker i'm sorry slow clap You're welcome, fandom. <laughs> I've been feeling kind of off with these last few podcasts, but I think I'm really firing all, all thrusters with this one, guys. <laughs> to talk about thrusters with sexy grandma. You just needed the right inspiration. And hooters. Hooters uh, on a grandma is the inspiration you need. So now the most important question of the book. Was it Terry Hatcher Donna or Mimi Kuzik Donna? I pictured neither of them, <laughs> but I think whenever I'm reading something with Donna, I pick I, I go for the Terry Hatcher one. It's funny because I pictured Terry in the past as Hannah, and I pictured Mimi in the present as Donna. Yeah, they looked exactly the same, <laughs> did they? Yes. D- did they? <laughs> what about you, Matt? I pictured the, the woman out of the leap between the states. <laughs> Abigail? Uh, Isabel? Yeah. What was her name? Well, whatever her name is. Yeah. <laughs> Abigail Isabel Beckett. <laughs> but uh, usually I, I picture Mimi. So we have it always. It's all Donna's to all people. 
Aldana's, all Elise's spellings, oops, Aldana's, all mm-hmm. over the place. This is a big tent, this podcast. We take Aldana's, so. <laughs> uh, any more notes about the back of the project stuff from you guys? Uh, Sam sealed his family records to keep people from peeking. I don't know if that counts as a project thing. I guess it's a thing he did mm. before he leaved. Yeah, why would he do that? That seems weird and oddly paranoid. Maybe after he, like was on the cover of Rolling Stone or whatever the hell. He's just like, people are getting too nosy. I don't want them to know what my ancestors did. It was actually him after um, Return of the Evil Leapers. And he leapt back into himself to seal his family records so that he wouldn't be vulnerable to Aaliyah and Lothos. See, I can play this game all day now that I've discovered it. (laughs) (laughs) I like it. I like that a lot. But anyway, yeah, that that struck me as odd. It was just like, hey, plot device machine. Let's let's say we don't know anything about Sam because he sealed his own records. Oh, and by the way, Ziggy broke the encryption in about 30 seconds, so you did pretty good. Yeah, why did that matter? They could have just said it was hard to, (laughs) yeah, they could just say it was hard to get into because it's old. It's so easy to find out information about that whole family line. You've just got to look up the history of anyone called Sam Beckett or John Beckett. All of them are called that, so... <laughs> yeah, that ain't hard. According to this book, Samuel was the only Samuel until Sam. There were no other Samuels. I doubt that. That family loves naming people the same thing, John, Sam, and Tom. As long as it's Tom and John. All right. <laughs> Let me flick open my family tree. I've got to find a contradiction. I had it in my mind that it was Samuel Beckett, like, before in Leap Between the States, but I guess it wasn't. <laughs> I guess it was John. That was John, then. Um, there was a great uncle, John, as well. And his dad named John, and whose brother was also named John in Australia. Yeah, all right, to be fair, it's it's generally Johns and Toms. And then there's, there's Tom Beckett has a son called Sam Beckett, which would Sam John Beckett, in fact, which we're not going to find out about until uh, Mirror's Edge. So, no, all right, yeah, fair enough. This this could be... I see no contradiction here that there aren't more Sams. It's it's Johns and Toms. And um, let me flick open my family tree is what Hannah says to Sam every time she wants to sleep with him. <laughs> <laughs> ah, filth. Good. There was a um, repeated talks about the grandma sex going on but um they're okay during one of the arguments about like is this incest or not and i was like go for it sam or whatever he's like well no no it's not technically incest you're fine but if it was the thought would add some spice to it right gross excuse me i don't need to know about these fantasies (laughs) from al It's, yeah. You can imagine you're related. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah that's, Excuse me? It was weird and gross. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and then, like, Al keeps checking her out, and then Sam's, like, jealous of him checking out his grandma? <laughs> Why? Because he, he was hot for grandma. I think we've established mm-hmm. that Sam was hot for grandma. <laughs> it's so much of this book. <laughs> I feel like we've now gone in circles and discussed all that we're going to discuss about independence. What do you, what, what else do you got? I got, I, got a, I got a few more. Okay. Go go for it, Matt. All right. Well, firstly, I, this is just a, a, a thing that I don't think was going to come up at any other point, but it's a small thing. There's, there's a line at the end. It's, it's when he's saving uh, Isaiah. And, uh, he's, he's doing CPR or whatever, and he says, that's it. Live, damn you. Live. Oh, I love that. Right. <laughs> Live, damn you. It was straight out of a 60s comic book or something. It was like Gold Key Star Trek or something. It was just, it was perfect. It live, was so damn bad. you, live. That is on every show from every franchise <laughs> in the history of television, the live, damn you, live. Oh, man. Doesn't he kind of do it like in Jimmy? Yeah. 
Yes. Yeah. Even Spock does it in Strange New Worlds when he's uh, resuscitating Christine and he's like, you don't die. You don't die. Which is the Vulcan, <laughs> live, damn you live. I don't know. Yes. <laughs> I think that John must have put that in there as a joke. Anyway, I choose to believe that. There was a Star Trek reference in this because someone says like, damn it, I'm blank, not a doctor or yes. whatever. Oh, I yeah. missed that. It's definitely yeah. a Star Trek reference. What else you got, Matt? So this is some stuff sort of more outside the novel. This was the first of the range not published in the UK. So all of them had box tree editions up to the, the one before. Isn't that ironic? Th this was due to be published in the UK. And there was um, it was listed in some uh, previews kind of publications as Leap into the Unknown. Uh, when, it, when it was going to be a box tree book. So it, it, it has an ISBN, but uh, yeah, didn't. Uh, didn't make it. Also, this was uh, John's third pitch for the range. Does he talk about the what's in the first two pitches? He does talk about that, and it is absolutely wild. We'll save that for the interview. Okay, I, I've, I know I've got the plot lines as well, but I won't. I won't spoil it. The listeners out there who normally skip the interviews, and I know there are plenty of you, do not skip this interview. It is. Just, it's wild. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, he does talk about that. I'd, yeah, you know what. I love hearing wild stories. <laughs> <laughs> I think I know what you're talking about, because I think they were um, also outlined in your book. Matt. Yeah. And yeah. I did listen to the interview back when it first was was put mm. up. So you're in for a treat on that stuff. But um, yeah, so he does talk about that. Any other of those? I love those behind the scenes things. To me, it's just like fascinating that the first book by a British author is not published in the UK. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or with a UK edition anyway, right? Yeah. Cool. Yeah, so that's all That's all I've got. All right, Allison, bring us home. All right, a few things. So we briefly touched on this, the fact that Sam falls into place very easily. I thought it was super weird. He leaps in and he is at knife point, like bleeding at knife point, like hard enough to make him bleed. Mm -hmm. uh, no reaction to this. It's so strange to me. Like he's just sort of like, hmm, I am at knife point. What could be happening here? And it's like, why... <laughs> You're at knife point. Like, why aren't you reacting? He's a seasoned leaper who's keeping calm and carrying on. I mean, he, he's he's got to assess the situation and figure a way out of it. I don't know. I feel even a seasoned leaper leaping in ni at knife point in the 1700s should have a little more of a reaction. That's just me, though. All right. <laughs> but I will say one of the things I thought was effective as far as using the time travel element was uh, on the scene on the ship at the very end, Sam uses CPR, which was not a technique back then. So I thought that was at least utilizing something. Yeah. And Hannah's like, what did you do? And he's just like, I, I don't have time to explain it now <laughs> or whatever. I'll explain yeah, later. And it's just like, <laughs> I hope, you know, I hope she forgets about it or we can just chalk it up to some, some kind of weird thing or whatever. Like they just sort of write that away. Like it's, basically it's like, it's not going to be my problem because <laughs> I, I finally did what I'm here to do. Yeah. I just thought that was, uh, mm. that was kind of fun. They did something there. Yeah. So uh, there was one section that you liked. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, well, actually, I did like too. There's one point in the book where uh, Al says, Nature stinks. <laughs> and I laughed. <laughs> but that was kind of a fun Al line. That, that sounded in character. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, this is also, this is my last thing. This is the first and maybe only book in the range. Was this the same for you? Um, there's a, an ad in the middle yes, of it. Yes, I wanted yeah. to ask you guys about that. Uh, what's on your ad? I think it must be the same for all of us. There, yeah. It's a, a two-page ad for uh, Terminator 2 3D and Jurassic Park the Ride yes. at Universal yes. Studios. 
this. And this is in the middle and the back of the book. It's twice. But in the middle of the book, it's an insert that what apparently seems to be something you're supposed to detach as a bookmark. Is that what it is? Is that how you took that? Because I didn't know why it was perforated in the middle. Is that what the idea is? Yeah, I I deduced that like yesterday as I was reading past this part of the book. I said, why is this squirt? Oh, they must want you to take this out and make it the bookmark. Oh, I guess. Yeah, you'd have uh, half the Terminator face and half a a T-Rex on it. And it's the Terminator (laughs) face with the red light behind the sunglasses. Oh, okay. That's kind of delightfully tacky. I'm glad that it wasn't torn, at least not in mine. I'm I'm so glad leapers out there everywhere can now get a proper Quantum Leap bookmark. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And if we're going to talk about the design of this book, I love the design of this book. This is like one of Al's outfits come to life. This is the only book in the range that is this canary yellow on the spine and on the back. Mm -hmm. It's got like this, this midnight blue quantum leap and this red leap for liberty. Nothing on the back of this book matches. It's glorious. It is is a contradiction. It's (laughs) Al come to book form. It's fun. It's great fun. I mean, more fun than Grandma Incest. And I didn't think that was possible. (laughs) Anyway, it seems to me, if we're talking about the color scheme of the book design, uh, maybe (laughs) we can hone in on some final thoughts on Independence by John Peel. Alison Pregler, have we changed your mind about Independence by John Peel? No, I enjoy dunking on it with you guys, but I, I, no, I didn't enjoy rereading this novel, to be honest. <laughs> I think there's too much what the fuck going on in it. But uh, again, John Peel seems like a, a delightful guy, and I'm glad that he did the interview and was uh, generous enough to talk to Hayden about um, his process, his ideas. Uh, seems like a cool guy, but this book was really a, a huge miss for me. <laughs> How about you, Matt? Yeah, it's such a shame. I mean, everything Alison just said, and it's so, for me, it's so close to being a hit because I I love these season five gimmick type ones. It's another opportunity to go into the distant past. Um, I was so excited to read this book the first time I read it, and uh, it just, it it misses in in so many ways. Um, And I, I was looking forward to reading it, A, because it was outside his own lifetime, and B, because it had the name John Peel on the cover. And... Yeah. Never mind. Oh, well. Um, listen, I think I'm going to give it more of a pass. Everything you guys say is 100% accurate. I just found that once John got past the Hannah, Donna, Grandma, incesty, booming refrain after refrain of how horny Sam is, and he started writing about the characters and the, the situations that Sam was in. Aside from that, the book threatened to get interesting. I just wish that <laughs> some of the stuff, some of the really interesting stuff, like the spy ring and like the Battle of New York that he set up for us, that he teed up, that he actually delivered on. And unfortunately, all of that turned out to just be one red herring after another to fill pages. Some of it was more interesting than other bits, but- At the end of the day, it was all wheel-spinning, page-filling stuff just so that we could have a story that ended the way it did. So for all that, I'm not going to say I hated the book, um, but yeah, no, it it certainly could have been a lot more than it was. So I think that closes the book on our discussion of independence, but stay tuned because when we get back, you will hear our interview with Mr. John Peel. The QLP is brought to you by listeners like you. 
please go to patreon.com slash quantum leap podcast and give as much as you can for as little as a dollar a month you can be a contributor to the quantum leap podcast it goes to covering our server cost and helps keep the podcast going thank you on the latest episode of leaps elsewhere we discussed something that i thought would be cute and heartwarming but which turns out to be worse than the landlady it's uh, the trial of old drum. <laughs> the trial of old drum, <laughs> based on a true story of uh, a trial involving a dog and a farmer and some sheep. Uh, they think that the dog's killing the sheep, and uh, Scott Bakula shows up in the last thirty minutes as a southern lawyer um, with a terrible haircut. <laughs> I quite liked it for a movie that is celebrating a gentler time gone by. There were a lot of total stone cold dicks in this. And a lot of just, like, casual murder. What do you have against nice things, Chris? <laughs> Where is the joy in your soul? Why do you hate joy? They put the dog in prison! <laughs> He's in a jail cell! It's so good! The twist is that the trial doesn't start until the end credits. That's the weird part! <laughs> to find out how to hear this and other Patreon-exclusive shows, go to patreon.com slash quantumleappodcast. That's patreon.com slash Quantum Leap Podcast. The movie got dumber. It got dumber the second time around. Ah, they should have they should have demanded dogs in the jury. That would have made the film a lot more fun. This is Scott Bakula, and you're listening to the Quantum Leap Podcast. Hey, hey you know what? It, it just occurred to me. I never got to discuss the Long Island stuff. Hello. Uh, hey, <laughs> hey, everyone, we're back. And I don't care if you want to hear it. You're going to hear it. So, Go on, then. Just so you know. One of the things that, like I said, kept me tethered to to this book in a way that I think made it more interesting for me was the fact that I knew almost all the locations that Sam was going to here, especially since Smithtown. I grew up in Smithtown. I went to Smithtown East High School. So that's that's how much I know Smithtown. But the distances in this book are so weird because you have like – them going from Smithtown to Oyster Bay, which is western Nassau. That's like all the way west on the island. And then he's going out to Mauritius, which is all the way east and on the south shore. Smithtown's on the north shore. The first scene, he's going to Oyster Bay with the Committee of Safety. And they seem to go after lunch and get there in like a half an hour. I mean, if you're going on horseback to Oyster Bay from Smithtown, it's going to take you a few hours, at least three to four hours. And it shows you that I'm right because there's one scene later in the book where they're trying to go from uh, the Beckett's place in Smithtown to um, the bad guy, John Kirk's place, also in Smithtown. And Sam says, how long is it going to take her? And he says, about two hours. They live on opposite sides of town. So if it takes two hours to get from two farms, both in Smithtown, how did they get to Oyster Bay in like, you know, in an afternoon? That's number one. And then I was thinking, okay, so Long Island is divided into townships, Smithtown being one of those towns. So you could live in Smithtown, but you could live in a different part of, so you could live in Kings Park, which is in Smithtown Township. Like, for example, I live in Bayport, which is Islip Township, right? So I thought, well, maybe he's talking he lives in Smithtown Township. So he could be further west because Smithtown Township is pretty big. But no, he's in Smithtown because they talk about going to Smithtown, to the main street, the main street where I grew up. So it's just like, no, it just doesn't make sense geographically. So that took me out of it. But I did love the Audi stuff 
where they go to Marich's and um, that inn that they talk about, Haven's Inn, which at the time John was writing this was called Ketchum's Inn, is now called the Marich's Inn. It's still standing. Um, I don't think it's an inn anymore. Uh, and I passed it a million times. I had no idea what it was until I read this book. So thank you, John, because I'm going to go now. Yeah. When I pass that over on Montauk Highway, I'm going to actually stop and take a closer look at it. So, And it was neat that they mentioned Learned something. Yeah, and they mentioned um, William Floyd and the William Floyd Estate, also out in sort of the Shirley Mastic Mariches area. Um, I've been to the William Floyd Estate. William Floyd was the signer of the Declaration of Independence who lived on Long Island. So uh, there's a whole parkway named after him, William Floyd Parkway. I take it several mm. times a week. And um, the estate, you know, it's a little run down, but it's still out there. It's pretty cool. It's no Sagamore Hill, but still, speaking of Oyster Bay, that's where Teddy Roosevelt had his summer White House in Oyster Bay. So Oyster Bay looms large on Long Island. And the fact that it, it played prominently in this book, but that was nice. But this is where the book really screwed up. And John, you know you're guilty of this. So that storm at the end, they were leaving from Oyster Bay. Am I am I correct? Uh, sure. Yeah. yeah. Right. Sure. Okay. I paid no attention to the locations. <laughs> yes. I'm learning all this along uh, right now from you. Okay. So they were leaving from Oyster Bay. Oyster Bay is in basically Western Nassau, which is very close in towards Queens and Brooklyn in the city, right? And it's on the North Shore, which means it's on the Long Island Sound. So if they are taking a boat to get to Connecticut from Oyster Bay, makes perfect sense. What doesn't make sense is this Fakakta storm that comes up like <laughs> the hurricane of the ages, because... The Long Island Sound is a very placid body of water. And where they're crossing the sound, you go out at Oyster Bay, you got to come around Center Island, and then you're in one of the most narrow parts of the sound to get to, I think, like, like Greenwich is probably across the sound from there. It's one of the narrowest parts of the sound, and it is one of the westernmost and most landlocked parts of the sound. So even if there was like a category three for hurricane battering from the Atlantic on the South shore, you wouldn't get waves like that in the sound. So the fact that they're at this epic storm at sea where the boat is literally like cresting these waves and then plunging down like, mm -hmm. like something out of Titanic, absolutely ridiculous. I mean, if you got mildly seasick on the sound at that point, I'd be surprised. So... That took me a little bit out of the book, but it made for an exciting scene regardless. So You know, it, yeah, it was an exciting scene. Uh, you know what took me out of the book? <laughs> <laughs> the grandma. Hey, you know who talks about that at length in his interview? <laughs> Mr. John Peel. So without any further ado, here is our interview with John Peel. The Quantum Lead Podcast is lucky enough to be joined by John Peel today. Thank you so much for joining us, John. Hello. <laughs> Just like to know, how did the story for independence come about? Well, um, it came about because I was absolutely hooked on Quantum Leap. Um, it was one of the shows that I, I never missed. And when I heard they were doing a series of novels based on it, I did something I don't usually do, and that's pretty much beg to write one. Um, I really wanted to have a go at it myself. And the editor, Ginger Buchanan, was kind enough to listen to me and agree that I could submit a few ideas. What I did originally was I, I came up with what I, what I try and do when I'm writing a book is to do something that can't really be done on TV for various reasons, which you can do in books. 
So I came up with what I thought was this absolutely brilliant idea for a novel. It's in which Sam leaps back in time to this cop who originally was killed in action. And it's his job to try and figure out and stop it. Unfortunately, what happens is he actually gets killed. Yikes. And I actually kill Sam. And then everything goes absolutely crazy. Um, there's a congressional investigation. Uh, Quantum Leap is closed down. They're forbidden to use the, um, the, you know, the, the machinery at all. And Donna and Al um, surreptitiously start it up again. And Donna has to leap back to try and save Sam. And, of course, she leaps back into the killer. And since this is her first leap, she's really, really groggy and doesn't know what she's doing. And the, the whole book comes to a climax, of course, where she confronts Sam and is about to kill him. And I pitched this idea to, to Ginger, and Ginger gave me this horrified look and said, we can't do that. <laughs> and I'm like, well, why, you know, why not? It's great. They will never do this on TV. And she said, they will never do it on TV because Sam is the star. He's only in two chapters of your book, <laughs> you know. So she said, no, no, you have to do a story which has Sam in it. I pitched the second idea where he leaps back into 1963 England because right. pretty much the show had been based in America. And I said to her, why does it have to be America? Why can't he leap anywhere in the world? And I pitched this idea, but she wasn't too happy with it. So I, at that point, I said, well, what would you like to see? You know, what would be your ideal pitch? And she said to me, I'd love it if he just if we had another one where he leaps along his own um, genetic line rather than to his own time into one of his ancestors' times. So that's when I sat down and thought, okay, what am I going to do? And I just at the, at the time I'd just been to um, Concord near Boston, which is where the first battles of the War of Independence were fought. So obviously this was for, foremost in my mind at the time. And I thought, well, that would be good then, and I, because the previous time he'd jumped back, it had been into a, a civil war setting. So I thought a revolutionary war setting might be more fun. And when I pitched this idea, uh, Ginger absolutely loved it. So on, on my third attempt, I got it right. <laughs> it turned out great. Just out of interest, the stories that you're originally pitching, have you managed to write them down anywhere? Because um, they actually sound really interesting. I'd like to have a chance to read them if possible. Um, yes, I've got, I'm pretty sure I've still got the outline somewhere. I'd have to dig them out. Uh, they'd be in one of my files. But yes, yeah, I write sort of three or four page outlines generally. So there's a, a good three or four page outline for both of the, um, the, the novels. Great. You might want to, uh, join our, <laughs> the Quantum Lake Podcast fanfic competition that we're running at the moment. Uh, you'd probably do a clean sweep. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to ask, writing about the American War of Independence, we were all concerned about having to have your story centered around historical events and people who actually existed. How closely do you feel you stuck to the historical facts and how much liberty do you think you took towards them? I tried to keep reasonably close to the historical facts. Um, a lot of what I put into the book was was quite accurate. Where I live, the Havens Inn is only a few miles from here. So I knew about the Havens connection to the Revolutionary War and about the spies and everything. It's become more popular these days, of course, with that new TV show that came out um, previous season. But 
at the time, virtually nobody was really writing about it. So I, I was doing something quite different, I thought. And I, I did some other research and looked around and found things that would fit into my plot line. When I started it, I only had a vague idea of what I was going to do. I knew he was going to jump into the Revolutionary War. And I had a few ideas about it, but that was pretty much it. So as I did the research, I kept thinking, oh, I can use this. I can use this and um, put, put it on one side. In the end, I did actually get one complaint from a reader, a very friendly complaint, who worked in um, one of these reconstruction villages. And she said the only thing she had actually found inaccurate in the book was that I'd used the wrong stove for when Sam's wife does the cooking. <laughs> that the stove I'd used actually didn't come into use until about 20 years later. And the funny thing is, when she said that, I remembered that she was absolutely correct, and I should have known it at the time, but I didn't. She's an expert, so if she only found one error. I don't think there were too many, thank goodness. <laughs> well, uh, you're just fitting into you know something that we Quantum Leap fans really love to do, and that's uh, picking out all the anachronisms. So it's a good oh, thing yeah. you left one there in for us. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is that one in there. I, I can guarantee that. <laughs> I, I tried my best. So how long do you think you actually spent doing your research and uh, where did you find your information? Um, well, my, my wife is a library director, so I went to her library and they have this thing called the Long Island Room, which is directly um, a, a collection of books that are, have direct bearing on the history of Long Island. So I went to the War of Independence section and started pulling pamphlets and articles and looking at them saying, no, that's too far away or okay, this is possible. And then I, I went through them you know, one by one that way. It's where I found out the, um, the stories about Huntington uh, that I used in the book. Great. Obviously, the story of independence was very, very different to what you originally pitched, and you had to make a great deal of edits in the process to be able to mm -hmm. make the sale. But what sort of changes uh, brought on in the story as it evolved through the writing process, and were you happy with the finished product? I was extremely happy with how it turned out. There were some changes. Um, when I started doing the book, I started writing it. I'd sent in, um, I'd never worked with Ginger before. And it's always kind of iffy when you're working with a new editor. You never quite know how you're going to get along. So, and obviously from her point of view, when you're working with a new writer you haven't used before, you're never quite sure if they're matching what you're thinking. So she had me send in a few chapters and I did that. I mean, it's not a problem. And she called me up and she said, you haven't got a verbena in it. And I said, who's verbena? <laughs> and uh, she said, well, she's, she's the, the psychologist. And I said, I honestly don't remember her. And she said, well, she was mentioned in like one episode, but we're using as a character as a regular character. So we'd like you to add her in. And I was like, yeah, okay. Um, I didn't know that. <laughs> so um, I, I had to actually go back and add Verbena into the story in certain places. The other thing was that the, one of my favorite parts of the original Quantum Leap, um, the TV show, was, I mean, I absolutely adored the story where Sam leapt back into himself and discovered he was married. So I was very, very keen on using Donna in, in a large role. And apparently Ginger wasn't so keen on that because she felt that the fans didn't really want Donna around because it kind of detracted from Sam. 
But I always thought that the, you know, the, the kind of lost love story was really, really powerful. So I pulled this forward and she, she let me get away with it in the end. <laughs> there definitely seems to be a theme throughout uh, independence of soulmates and people who gravitate towards each other, no matter how time or space separates them. Was this intentional on your part or do you think it was just a really nice side effect? Oh, no, no, that was intentional on my part. I liked the idea that Sam was falling in love with his own ancestor. I mean, aside from the fact that it it raises all kinds of creepy questions um, (laughs) and obviously, you know, get get Sam all worked up about it. I mean, you know, falling in love with your own great, great, whatever grandmother is a little weird to say the least. Um, I I like that kind of aspect of it, but I I just felt it, it was kind of, it was just too much fun not to do really. And, I like that kind of star-crossed lovers theme. It's it's something I've always enjoyed, and that was my really only chance to actually play with it. Yeah, and it was hilarious seeing Al, you know, give his usual, oh, go for it, Sam, and Sam being yes. <laughs> creaked out with his thoughts. And Yeah, I mean, Al is right about uh, it wouldn't be incestuous with that much separating, but, uh, yeah, everyone can understand how creepy and creeped out Sam would be feeling. Uh, Sam would be, yes. Yes. Uh, in, in fact, Ginger thought I was making um, Al a little bit too sexist, uh, which is why I put the last little piece in the book where he explains to Donna that he's being sexist, not because it's his nature, which it is, of course, but because he was trying to distract Sam. So she allowed me to get away with that one. <laughs> yeah, it's always nice having that little bit of extra for Al, just to give his character a little bit more flavor. Obviously, since this story is set outside Sam's lifetime. As you said, he has to leap into one of his ancestors whose DNA is similar enough so that it's a match. And it appears that his host Samuel is very much like Sam and that Mm -hmm. Samuel's wife Hannah is very much like Donna, even in appearance. So when you were writing the story, did you actually picture Samuel and Hannah as the past lives of Sam and Donna? Um, No, not really. It's just that I'd read this piece where they would talking about how people are attracted to certain kinds of people. And I just thought it would be kind of interesting to have two people who look a little alike being attracted to two other people who look a little alike. It it was just my way of picking up a little bit of scientific background, I guess. I I do this sometimes. I'll, I'll read an article and think, oh, that's an interesting thing. I'll have to keep that in mind for one of my stories. And that one had just occurred to me. And it just seemed like it was kind of appropriate that, you know, if Sam looked like Samuel, maybe they'd be attracted to the almost exactly the same kind of woman. Yeah, it makes sense. Well, it sort of, it sort of made sense when I was writing it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it definitely makes sense. Uh, now, there's a great deal of violence depicted in independence for obvious reasons, being, you know, in the Revolutionary War. What sort of a mindset do you have to get into to be able to write a violent scene, and does it affect you at all? Um, everything I write affects me in one way or another. Sometimes I get caught up in what I'm doing, and the, the mindset doesn't go away when I stop writing. Sometimes when I'm having a discussion, if I'm talking to someone after I've written a chapter or something, I will still be talking in the way that my characters have been talking. Because once you get into it, it takes you a little while to get out again. With the violence, I'm not very keen on violence myself, but when you're dealing with a war story, you have no options. You, you know, you have to have violence. 
Um, my feeling is that if you're writing a war story, you should show it as being pretty unappealing, really. Uh, that That's the way I try to approach it. Yeah, definitely. Just moving on a little bit from Quantum Leap, what are some books that you absolutely loved that may have inspired you to become a writer? That one actually is very easy. Uh, when I was, wow, it must have been 10 years old or 11 years old, I grew up on Doctor Who. And back in, in the early 60s, mid-60s, it was, must have been, David Whittaker novelized the very first Dalek story as Doctor Who in an exciting adventure with the Daleks. And, I mean, I must have read that 20 or 30 times, even as a kid. And it, it just flowed into me. It was just so beautifully written. And I just absolutely adored it. And that made me want to do the same kind of thing. It, that, that was probably the book mostly responsible for my one ride. Um, and, I mean, even now, I still love it. His, his writing style is beautiful. And his, you know, his sense of story is great. So uh, that's the number one book I know that really influenced me. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I've read a lot of others as well. I was a tremendous reader as a kid. I'm still reading all thought even these days because I, I enjoy the imagination. I enjoy prose and how people can tell stories and things. So I read an awful lot. I read everything. I mean, I, I didn't really care whether it was good or bad. I would just read it just to see. Because I, I always felt that if someone had managed to get into print, there must be something in it that's worth reading. <laughs> Not so sure these days, but back back then I was quite convinced of it. <laughs> well, you can't judge a book by its cover, can you? Well, a lot of people do that. That's the trouble. <laughs> it's funny you mention that, actually. We have one listener who I've been telling the listeners that we were going to be talking to you, and uh, she said to me, I'm a bit iffy about reading Independence because the cover looks very gory. <laughs> <laughs> and I told her, no, you have to read it. It's great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I kind of like the cover. It's, it's rather nice. Very, very good picture of Sam. Oh, it is. Yeah. I, I do enjoy the cover. Uh, I've, I've been very fortunate. Almost all of my book covers I've loved, and um, that was certainly a good one. So what's it like writing for an established franchise like Doctor Who or Quantum Leap, as opposed to starting a new universe from scratch? Well, you've got a lot of background already done for you. Uh, when you're creating your own universes or your own stories set in even our universe, you have to do a lot of background work, just setting up the, the set, you know, the setting and the characters and everything. Whereas when you're doing it based on a TV show or a movie, that's all been done for you. So what you then have to do is just say, well, taking these characters, what would be an interesting thing to do with them? So I enjoy doing both things. I enjoy writing my own original stories. But then again, I enjoy playing in other people's universes. So if, if it's a show I like, especially, you know, um, obviously I'm, I'm very keen to write them. And it, it's great fun for me. Um, it's, it's a lot easier because you, you, you can picture things much quicker. There's less creation involved in that sense. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. Uh... Is it easier to be able to write for an established franchise because you don't have to do all that background work? Well, then there's the problem that, of course, that you have to stay within the framework so that you, you, you have constraints that you don't have with your own characters. I mean, obviously, if you're writing, uh, well, as I say, I tried to, I was about to say you can't kill off the main characters, but that's exactly what I wanted to do. Uh, in my first time around on Quantum Leap. Uh, but, I mean, you, you know, obviously you can't make major changes. By the end of the book, 
your characters can't really change that much from the beginning of the book because there's going to be another 50 or 60 people writing stories on the same in the same universe and they're not going to be necessarily reading what you've done and obviously you you can't marry off characters or things like that you know higgledy piggledy you you've got to follow the the, the guidelines so it's kind of like you, you you have to follow a map and you, you've got a certain amount of leeway you can go one direction or another but you've got to basically end up in the same place that's one of the beautiful things about quantum leap isn't it the fact that uh you can pretty much watch them in any order you like and there's not much of an effect on the overall arcing story how different is it writing about a video game Ah, well, <laughs> that that was kind of weird. I am absolutely awful at video games. Terrible. Absolutely terrible. So it's mostly, from my point of view, when I was doing Common San Diego, I played a few games just to get the feel of it and what the characters were like, and then I simply put it on one side and just wrote a story. And, you know, that was that. <laughs> Other than that, no, uh, video games I, I, I sort of steer clear of. <laughs> Are there any franchises that you've wanted to write for but haven't had the chance? Oh, yes, lots. Um, one of the ones that I really wanted to do was Alien Nation. I mean, I adored that series. Very, very clever show. And I, um, I actually approached them about doing a novel. And what happened was that I was actually set to do one. They had found... When the show had originally been broadcast, this was between the show being broadcast and the reunion movies. Um, when the show had originally been broadcast, there were a whole bunch of scripts that had never been filmed. So they actually sent me an unscreened film um, script and said, would you like to novelize this? And it was a very clever script. So I said, yes, sure, I'd love to. And we were literally like a day away from signing the contracts and the series was canceled. So the books went by the way. So I was very close to writing an Alien Nation novel, which would have been a lot of fun. I, I was looking forward to that one. Um, but there's several other franchises I, I would have adored to have played with. And um, who knows, maybe one of these days I, I'll get a chance to, to do it. But, um, I mean, they're bringing back a lot of the ones that I've always enjoyed, like Man From Uncle or Thunderbirds. So I might just get a chance one of these days. <laughs> Yeah, well, I'm sure we'd all uh, really love to hear it. Which of your works is still in print, and uh, where can they be purchased? Pretty much most of my um, my fantasies are still in print. I believe Amazon carries quite a number of them still, thank goodness. And um, I've self-published a couple that um, were sequels to other material that um, the original publisher decided they didn't want to do a sequel to for one reason or another. So a couple of them are actually myself, my own publications. And I've got a Lethbridge Stewart novel coming out next year, though I'm not exactly sure quite when yet. <laughs> yeah, that's a Doctor Who spin-off, isn't it? Yes, yes. It's, Doc, it's a spin-off from the Doctor Who. Someone discovered that the Brigadier character was actually not copyrighted by the BBC, but by the original author, the person who had written it originally, and they licensed it from him. So that was kind of interesting. <laughs> Are you allowed to give us a little tidbit of uh, what we can expect in that book? Oh, sure. What it is is that the character of Lethbridge Stewart was created for the story The Web of Fear and then reappeared later in The Invasion. So these books of Lethbridge Stewart's adventures are set between those two stories, uh, in between him, 
his first appearance and his second appearance, which spanned about two years. So they've got plenty of room for stories, I think. And what it is is that he's – this is before the days that he's working with UNIT. He's working with the British Army. So I ended up writing an alien invasion story with the very strange title, The Grandfather Infestation, which actually makes sense when you read the story. But I came up with the, the title simply to make people go, what? Um, which I do occasionally. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's an, it's an alien invasion. I've done alien invasions before. And the, the one thing I don't like is just that a lot of the aliens are just nasty unpleasant characters that have decided, you know, they're going to invade the Earth. I wanted something a little bit different. And these aliens really don't care one way or the other about the human race. They just want the property, which is kind of, um, I I, I thought was a little different, at least. (laughs) Really looking forward to it. You're also working on the third Dragon Home book, is that correct? That's right. Yes, in fact, I, I was working on it a little earlier today. It's one of those things where I, I was working with an editor who was absolutely marvelous and who understood me really, really well. And he called me up one day in the middle of this, the summer and said to me, hi, John, it's Craig Walker. Would you like to write a book for me? And I mean, they're magic words for any author, of course, you know, when, it, when they actually come to you and ask you to write a book. It's amazing because they've already convinced themselves they want you, which is a good start. So you don't have to work quite so hard pitching stories. And I said, yes, I'd love to write you a book. And he said, how about Jane Eyre with dragons? It was just one of those things, you know, sometimes something just catches your imagination and you just go, yeah, I can do that. So I said to him, yeah, sure. And I literally got off the phone with him. This was like four o'clock in the afternoon. And I sat there the rest of the evening thinking, Jane Eyre with dragons. And I started typing an idea and by the literally by the following morning i had a complete outline and i called him up and said i'm faxing you an outline this is in the days before um widespread computer use um i'm faxing you an outline and i faxed him the outline and he bought it the same day literally a day after he'd asked me to write the book he bought it then of course i had to sit there and write it yeah, well that's and great turned- feedback though <laughs> yeah what was funny was because I was so inspired from the beginning by just simply that one line description that I I actually wrote it very, very quickly. And I I really, it was like white heat, you know, the the way you work. I'm one of those writers when I'm writing, I just really can't wait to get get up in the morning and start work again. And that book, more than probably any other I've written, I was really, really excited by myself. And I think if you're excited by a story yourself, this comes through in the writing. Uh, it helps the you know it helps the reader, and it's proven to be a very very popular book. I'm I'm getting constantly getting um, comments from people saying, "I read this when I was in fifth grade. Now I'm ri- reading it to my children," which is kind of flattering and ins- well not exactly insulting, but you know it makes you think, "Oh my goodness, it must be I must be a lot older than I thought," kind of thing. If they're reading it to their kids. <laughs> But but it, it's wonderful that they, they have such good memories of the book. And I had so many people asking me for a sequel that I, f- I finally gave in and did it. But it turned out that my the, the, the editor, uh, Craig Walker, who had commissioned the first book, had died, sadly. And nobody else at his publishing firm wanted to take on a sequel. 
So I thought, right, I'll, I'll publish it myself, which I did. And as soon as I did that, people then read it and then kept emailing me and everything and saying, when are you doing the next one? So I, I got kind of forced into doing a third one without really having thought about what the, what the story would be. Yeah, what have you gotten yourself into? <laughs> yes, quite. And it's astonishing because people love the character, um, the main character, Malayne, who has the ability to communicate with animals. And she talks with animals and everything. And she's an interesting character because she's very naive. She's been brought up in almost isolation. So she really doesn't know how to communicate to people exactly. And she just tells the truth constantly, which usually gets her into serious trouble, of course. And um, her, her responses are just very instinctive. So she's an interesting character, and people just seem to really relate to her, which is lovely. I love characters like that. It sounds a, a lot like Luna Lovegood from Harry Potter, one of those people yes. that just genuinely doesn't care what anyone else thinks and, you know, brutally right. honest all the time. And Yeah, it's kind of funny watching uh, Luna because she is a little like Melaine, yes. Um, thankfully, I, I created Melaine a few years before Harry Potter, so I'm fairly safe there. <laughs> Uh, well, maybe you can get some royalties from J.K. Rowling. That would be lovely. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is just a writing in general sort of question. I've noticed that a lot of writers sometimes tend to write under a pseudonym, and I've noticed you've done that with a few works. Um, I'm just yeah. wondering what sort of reasons are there behind wanting to write under a pseudonym? Just because <laughs> it just seems like I'd want to get the credit for my work. I don't know why I'd put it under a different name. So. <laughs> Yep, well, no, my, my feeling is exactly. I never wrote under a pseudonym myself willingly. I mean, it was never me saying, oh, I want this to go out as, under a pseudonym. I never did that. Um, what, what happened was that I, I wrote a couple of books in a continuing series. And what would happen there is that the editors had created a kind of group name because they would have various writers writing these stories. And the problem is, they would then obviously, if they were under the original writer's names, they would all get lumped. Uh, they wouldn't be put together on the shelf. They would all be separate. And it would be hard to find you know, where the series was when you'd have to keep going from different writer to different writer. So they create a, a, a kind of group pseudonym that everybody writes under, which is what happened when I did um, books as Nicholas Adams. The other time I really wrote under a pseudonym was when I did the James Bond Jr. books. And in that case, it was because the James Bond production company who owned the copyrights didn't want my name on the books because they didn't want me to be credited as a James Bond writer. So they insisted on putting on a pseudonym. Um, but since I did all six books, it was, it was a pseudonym that was actually me. And somebody there must have had a sense of humor. I don't know who it was because I certainly never talked to them. Um, but instead of John Peel, they, they created the pseudonym John Vincent. And I think it's from that How to Win Friends and Influence People uh, book by a guy called John Vincent Peale. So I, I think they were being a bit funny there. If I was a, an editor, then I'd be trying to sneak little funny bits in as well, wherever I can. <laughs> I used to do that a lot with my books. I have a terrible sense of humor, and I, I, I can't write seriously for too long. I have to put jokes into things because that's the way I am. And... Um, uh, I, I did that with the James Bond Jr. books. There's a lot of jokes in those. 
Just moving back to Quantum Leap a little bit, what is your favorite part of Quantum Leap or your favorite aspect of Quantum Leap? Well, I, I think the, the, the thing that really grabbed me, the, the episode that really, really made me love the show was the episode, I've forgotten the name of it now, um, the episode where Sam jumps back into the Black Servant. Uh, the Color of Truth, I think that one. Color of Truth, yeah. yes. And I mean, to me, that was an astonishing episode. It was something you had never seen really on TV before. And the, the way they were approaching the color problem in a very weird way, because he was white, of course, but everybody saw him as black. And it was just such a beautiful script. And I mean, let's face it, he's such a great actor that that role that he played was just had so much dignity in it. And I, it just absolutely, I, I, I mean, I was blown away by that one. And I mean, after that, as far as I was concerned, there was no way I was missing the show. Before that episode, I'd always enjoyed it. But that was the one episode that kind of really made me realize just what they could do with the show when they had a mind to. And it, it was just wonderful. Yeah, I have a very similar experience, actually. Uh, the Color of Truth is the first episode that I actually saw. And ah. yeah, just watching that, I was hooked. Yeah. There was no way I was missing it either. So <laughs> I guess yeah. what minds think alike. Yeah, it, it, it's just such a brilliant episode. And um, it, it was so well written, so well acted, so well filmed. It was just everything came together. You know, sometimes this happens on a show where everything just comes together absolutely perfectly. And you, you, you're just watching it going, yes, brilliant. And, and that was my experience with that episode. It's great that through Quantum Leap, they're able to tell a story about things that have happened in the past, real sensitive and huge issues, but from the point of view of someone who's living in present day. So we can see how absurd and how unjust everything is, and we're seeing it through the same point of view as ourselves through this character that's from the present. So, Right. Yeah, I, I do that a lot myself, taking characters from the present day and putting them in past situations where you can comment on them, whereas, of course, the characters who are living in the past see nothing wrong with what they're doing. A character from the present day looking at the situation can say, well, that's not right. That's not the way people should behave. And that's what Quantum Leap managed to do a lot, I think. Yeah, they really did a great job of that. This is a question from one of our listeners, Leslie. Reviews of the Quantum Leap novels tend to range all over the spectrum. One's down the very, very <laughs> low end saying this is, you know, an awful book. The writer doesn't understand the two main characters, all the way up to glowing reviews saying it's the most true to book series I've ever read. Oh, by the way, yours is definitely up there on the high end. Uh, <laughs> but did you ever feel any pressure about writing what has become one of the most beloved series on the planet? No, actually, I, I, I never felt any pressure whatsoever. I just felt tremendously glad that I was doing it because, I, as I say, I love the show and I really, really, really wanted to play with those characters. It, it's only after you're done that you start thinking, oh, I wonder how other people are going to see this. Um, because you, you can never know. This is why the reviews are always up and down. One person can love it, one person can hate it, because it depends on, on the viewer or, in this case, obviously the reader, as to how they respond to what you're writing. And, you know, sometimes you, you hit the right buttons and everybody goes, oh, love it. And then other times you, you miss somehow. And then people start picking holes in it. 
So, you know, you, you really can't worry about that while you're writing it. Uh, that tends to be something that comes to you afterwards. Oh, how are they going to take this? I hadn't even thought about it kind of thing. Yeah, when you can't do anything about it. Right, yes. Well, um, I, I, I can give you an example of, of something that I did, which I wasn't sure how anybody would take, and then nobody even got it, so it wasn't a question. Um, I, I did a Star Trek novel, a Star Trek Next Generation novel, and um, this was about the time that um, Jonathan Frakes was hosting the Alien Autopsy video. So I wrote an Alien Autopsy video into my book, and had Jonathan Frakes actually present at it in the story, and because I thought it would be funny. And it wasn't until after I'd written it and sent it in that I suddenly thought, well, you know, people got a little annoyed with him for doing that. Maybe they'll get annoyed with my book having put the joke or something similar in. And I don't think anybody even noticed it. It was so weird, because I was expecting to get a, a, a lashback from people saying, how could you do that? And I, I didn't get a single comment. Nobody. It was so weird. So yeah, I think you'd probably find that people are just interested to see what, what people think up. So uh, you, you right. can't really criticise someone for letting their imagination run wild. <laughs> Do you know if Independence is going to end up being released in an ebook form at all? And have any of your other works been released as ebooks? I have no idea. The writer's usually the last person who gets told these kind of things, I'm afraid. A couple of my Star Trek books have been released in ebook form. I know that, and the ones that I've self-published, I've done as ebooks as well. Uh, I have to admit, I bought a Kindle a couple of years ago, and um, I'm absolutely hooked with it. Uh, aside from anything else, it means my bookshelves don't get quite so weighed down these days. So I'm I'm very fond of um, having things in ebook form, and it's a great way of of doing a back uh, catalogue, which. I mean, obviously, publishers don't like to keep every book they've ever printed in uh, in print because you know, it's going to take a lot of space up. Whereas in, in ebook form, you can keep them uh, pretty much in print forever. There's no problem. So I, I, I think it would be lovely. I'd, I'd love to see the Quantum Leaps come out in ebook form. Have any of them been done? Not to my knowledge. And we get a lot of yeah. questions if we know if it's going to happen or if or why hasn't it been done. Obviously, we're not affiliated with them. We've got no idea. Right. So, but we we also hope that they do get released in ebook form at some point too because people have exactly the same mindset. They want to be able to have it with them all the time and not have it take up too much space. And Right. Well, uh, certainly if anybody actually approached me about it, I, I'd be very happy to say, yes, 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 do it. Because I'm an author and I have an ego and I love the idea of my books coming back in print, <laughs> especially ones that I've enjoyed writing so much. Speaking of writing for Quantum Leap, do you have any other Quantum Leap stories in your head that uh, you're just dying to put down on paper? Where would you have Sam leaping to next? Um, I've actually not thought about it. As I say, I did the one book. And then I moved on. I forget what I did after that, but I, I, I went on to something else. And then I really hadn't thought about doing any more. I, 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 it's, it's kind of odd because I'd enjoyed it so much. And usually when I enjoy something, I like to go back and do another. But for some reason, I never quite got around to going back to Quantum Leap. Um, I, I think I was distracted. I think this was about the time when I was creating my own fantasy series, and I, I focused so much on that that I really didn't think back again. <laughs> but um, there's a lot of stuff. As I say, I always wanted Sam to leap out of 
um, America. Because, you know, it seems so unrealistic that every single time he jumped, he should jump somewhere in America. Only a few times I can think of offhand, so. Right. Yeah, and if you think about how big the world is and the small percentage that uh, America is, then you'd be probably be expecting him to be leaping outside quite a lot more. Same with women as well, because women are more than 50% of the population, and uh, he only ever leaps into a woman a few times as well. So, Right. You know, I mean, there's, there's a lot of ground to explore there, especially if you want to tell um, an interesting story. I mean, you've got – we had the leap into Vietnam, for example – which was um, obviously overseas. But um, other than that, there really wasn't a lot. And th- there's just so much you can explore. And w- with the point of view in a, of Sam and everything, it, it would be interesting, I'm sure. Well, hopefully uh, all the writers and perspective writers around realise how rich this show is with possibilities and get writing and building up more interest and hopefully we'll get back the show and back the novel series in some way, shape or form. Yeah, it would be great. Well, thank you for joining us, John. Uh, it's been fantastic talking to you. Thank you very much for, um, for an interesting conversation. It's been great fun. All right, so did I tell you that those other two stories that he pitched, like Freakorama, huh? I mean, yeah. I had told you uh, in the last episode, spoiler alert, that um, John pitched the story in which Sam gets killed. I don't recall hearing this part of it. So for me, it's almost like I'm listening to it for the first time, like how that would have played out. And to me, that would have been so much more of a better book. <laughs> yeah. Didn't, wasn't one of the other pitches involving Edward Sinjin? Yes. Yeah, it's, it's Sinjin's whole backstory. Yeah, that would have been interesting. Swinging 60s London. Yeah, I don't know if I'd want a whole book about it, but I would have know, wanted to know his backstory a little bit. So so wait a minute. So he did say in the interview that he wanted a book that was set in the UK, and that was the second one he pitched. That was a Sinjin novel? That was going to be about Roddy? Yeah. So th- th- this is reading from my own synopsis of of the pitch that he sent me. So he sent me the original pitch a few years back. I don't have that to hand right now. But reading from my summary of that, Sam leaps into a bar in London close to the BBC on July 13th, 1963, and saves a young John Lennon from a bar fight. His hologram arrives to tell him he's been successful, but it's Edward Sinjin. Uh, blah, 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 blah. And then I'm sure, don't we meet a young Sinjin as well? I thought it was about him when he was younger. Um, Oh, yes, yes. Sinjin explains that Al is head of the Appropriations Committee for the Observer and that a younger Sinjin is bartender at the location Sam is in. Sinjin recalls that he was almost killed in a case of mistaken identity, which Ziggy believes might be the reason for the leap. Sam agrees, but secretly also wonders how to return Al to his proper place. But how would... Okay, so if he saved him from dying in the, what, 60s or whatever, 70s, Hmm. maybe 60s... um, then how would that make sense the first time he showed up because Al died? How did that save his life? Well, only if England Swings is set before Leap for Lisa. But then he wouldn't recognize he's he's obviously recognizes Sinjin in this in, in this pitch. I don't know. I you know what? I don't know how it would have been, but it's interesting to hear about the things that that were thrown out there. And in fact, yeah, I do I do mention that in my write up. <laughs> I'm just saying Sam getting killed and Donna leaping to rescue him. 
like off the charts. Um, now, um, leaping into the UK to have the backstory of Sinjin after Leap for Lisa again. John is a fan. He loves Quantum Leap because yeah. these are the craziest fan fiction ideas I have ever heard. <laughs> they are. <laughs> He seemed to have a Donna thing, huh? From this he one, did. and then that, or Donna leaps back. Like he, he liked Donna. I wish maybe Donna had been a little more fleshed out in this story. And we found out why because Ginger didn't want her. <laughs> <laughs> Is that why all the novels kept writing her out? Because Ginger's like, no, I don't know. But I, I it feels like this. Uh, this the same reason that she made John put Verbena in because Verbena had been a character that had been established in the novels, and all of a sudden she wasn't there. Was I guess maybe the same sort of um, fan reaction to the Donna stuff. And he even said, like, they maybe she's polarizing or the fans don't don't like her or whatever, so she didn't want Donna in. That's strange. It wasn't an issue with me because I had Donna in for a microsecond in my book. I mean, she was featured in other books, though. Yeah, yeah. But I think that maybe at this point, the novel series had gone on long enough where they were discovering what the fans liked and what the fans didn't, and they were course correcting. And they were like, quit writing. All the Donna ones are tanking sales. Get Donna out of here, please. No Donna stories. She's got her frying pan scaring them off. That's weird. Was she really that unpopular, or was it just Ginger kind of um, uh, trying to guess You know what would sell better? We'd have to ask Ginger. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, yeah. This was in an era before the internet or anyway in the nascent days of the internet. So it was, I guess, maybe easier to keep track on like uh, chat boards and stuff, what the fans were reacting to. I mean, you look at it now, I guess you take it for granted that a lot of showrunners, just the name like Disco Star Trek, are course correcting constantly based on what the fans are bitching about. So <laughs> maybe this was an earlier version of that. Who knows? Who knows? Wow. I should have just tried to do a Donna novel and then I could have gotten chapter and verse as to why it wasn't allowed. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so it's very interesting. So that's what I say. I love to hear about uh, writers and their process and just the behind the scenes stuff at the novel series itself is, of course, of special interest to me, much like the Long Island stuff was of special interest to me in this book. So thank you, John. If nothing else, I've had a completely enriching experience with independence on many, many levels. So much appreciated, sir. <laughs> Well, this is usually where I throw to Patreon news and feedback, but we're in the hazy, crazy, lazy days of summer and ain't nobody reaching out to us. So <laughs> I got nothing, nothing to bring you guys. So they're all visiting their mothers. They're all visiting their mothers. Yes. Or, you know, mm. their hot grandmas. Who knows? Who knows? Oh. <laughs> oh. A lot of them Aww. sound like that, yeah. Uh, so, is there any news on the interview front, Matt? I know you've been doing a lot more of the comic book interviews with with uh, some of the writers there and, and the artists. And uh, what's what's the latest on that front? Yeah, so I've got um, I, I I can't remember which. Oh, Rob Davis would have been the last one uh, that went onto YouTube. That was a really fun interview. He's a really great guy. He wrote. Um, oh, sorry, he did the art for. Uh, two of the issues and he just he, he spoke a bunch about his work on star trek and generally how to get into the industry and stuff really interesting guy and i've got four five uh booked in over the next couple of weeks uh one of which i'm going to be recording in about an hour hopefully so yeah I've, i have a few a few good ones coming up so by the time this one's this is out uh there might be might be new additions out but at the end of the day if you're not up to date with what's on the youtube channel 
go across the YouTube channel because that's where they're that's where they're hitting first. I'm sure we'll end up reprising them when we get to the comics. Oh, for sure. But, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. There's 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 loads of them. Yeah, I'm tracking down a lot of people. Awesome. So undoubtedly uh, valuable for Beyond the Mirror Image volume. Yes, volume three. Volume three. Yeah. yeah so exactly. that's where the comic and the novel stuff is going to come in. So uh, yeah, it's going to be a treasure trove from the second edition. So where can people get Beyond the Mirror Image, Matt? Is that available yet for general purchase? So volume one will be available imminently. Uh, by the time you're listening to this, I'm shipping out the pre-orders and then I'll be switching straight to public orders, which will be available through forevertv.co.uk. And that's volume one is the one that goes through the episodes of the original series. Volume two about the new series is already available through that link. And volume three, I'm going to be starting a Kickstarter campaign for uh, very soon as well and that's going to be out next year but that's that'll cover the comics the novels the timeline all my crazy headcanon al's clothes uh hopefully a feature on allison's dryer lint portrait it's gonna have everything <laughs> every time sam leaped as a baby to cock block himself that too yeah, exactly uh-huh. <laughs> I, I, every every baby that we ever see in the show is a Sam Leap. <laughs> yeah. So where, where can people find that again, Matt? I know you said it. Say it again, please. Forevertv.co.uk All right, everybody check that out. And if you would like to give your opinions on independence or all the great interviews that Matt's doing or all the incest stuff that Allison is so cringy about, there are many ways that you can reach us here at the Quantum Leap Podcast. You can drop us a line at P.O. Box 542, Bayport, New York, 11705. You can get us on the phone at 707-847-6682. You can email us at quantumleappodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash quantumleappodcast. You can tweet us at quantumleappod or Instagram us at quantumleappodcast. And you can find us on YouTube at youtube.com slash thequantumleappodcast. You can also go that extra mile and support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash quantum leap podcast just remember we may use your response on an upcoming episode of the quantum leap podcast and speaking of both patreon and upcoming episodes i put up the poll about what our next leap should be and the patrons have spoken i'm just (gasps) checking now on my phone to make sure it hasn't changed since we started recording so i'm so excited (laughs) let's take a look uh 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 oh God. <laughs> I mean, like, it's not even close. Uh, hey, who wants to see Sam Leap as a woman for the first time? Looks like our next episode. What's it going to be, Matt? <laughs> is it going to be what price, Gloria? Is it what price, Gloria? It is what price, Gloria. You'll be late for your new job. Miss Youngest Executive Secretary at the company. Miss? At last. <laughs> having, having been teased with that at the end of Playing Against Seymour, which we spoke about months ago, finally we get to see what happens when Sam leaps into a bath. There we go. <laughs>
So, I mean, you want to talk cringy stuff. I mean, there's some cringy stuff in this episode, if I recall correctly, and uh, maybe hasn't aged too well. Maybe some hashtag problematic mm. scenes. <laughs> not sure. There's one or two things that haven't aged too well, but I'm <laughs> looking forward to watching it again. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be a milestone in Quantum Leap, so uh, it'll be fun to watch, and uh, I especially can't wait to watch with you guys hear what you say. Until that time, I've been Christopher DeFilippis. I've been Allison Pregler. And I've been Matt Dale. And we'll see you in the bath. (laughs) (laughs) But not with our grandma. Ew. Ew. (laughs) Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Quantum Leap podcast, hosted by Allison, Matt, and Chris, with voice talent and contributions from Hayden McQueenie and Zoe Dean. To support the show, please go to patreon.com slash quantum leap podcast. The executive producer of the Quantum Leap podcast is Albert Burge. Christopher DeFilippis and Hayden McQueenie are the co-executive producers. Special thanks to our producers, Harold Sullivan, Glenda Palma, Chris, a.k.a. Brackmang, Mike Covert, Jeff Kiska, Craig Riedler, Cosplay Dad, Charles Allen Gossard, and Morgan Felden. The thoughts expressed on this podcast are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent those of the Quantum Leap podcast, its partners, or affiliates. The Quantum Leap universe and all it contains is the property of Belisarius Productions and Universal Television. The Quantum Leap podcast is not affiliated with Belisarius Productions or Universal Television, and no copyright infringement is intended. The Quantum Leap podcast is a barren space production. Hey, behind the scenes at the QLP. <laughs> um, I, I put some more detail on this rundown so that I wouldn't forget to mention stuff. So if you see, if it seems very focused on just what I want to talk about, well, I'm the one writing the rundown. So. <laughs> That's, That's fine. So hard hey. When you got notes and you're like, I'm trying to kind of keep an idea together, but <laughs> keep the energy and the yeah. conversation flowing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, so anyway, um, but I'm sure that, you know, we're pretty capable, all three of us. I think we can handle independence. So we ready to get the show on the road. By the way, we haven't done any clapping or anything. I don't know we, we haven't done, done any of that earlier, shit, so. Yeah, I know. This, I'm some, like, shot out of a cannon. I'm so ready to do this show. <laughs> 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 and thank you, Allison, for reminding me of that. Because I feel like as we go on and we do this more, I, I forget how to podcast, like, I just, I feel Sometimes like I'm you're just ready to get in the combo, you know, <laughs> I'm just, yeah. no, I think I'm just becoming steadily less talented at this. So, Hey, we'll no, see. Let's, you know, you, you got fun. a good flow going. So that's when there yeah, are four, exactly. uh, four footprints in the sand instead of six footprints. That's when you guys carried me. So thank you very much. <laughs> I love you guys, but I don't want to see either one of you in the bath. If that's okay. <laughs> You're friends. It just will be weird. But but how close are friends are you? I mean, would it be technically that weird? I, mm. Would it be so weird that it's not weird anymore? Yeah, I, I think we, I think we can get around this with a technicality. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm stopping now. You can imagine you're related.